Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait What? Comics and Pop Culture Podcast, coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I conclude our two-part odyssey to answer questions from the show's supporters on Patreon. Questions and answers include our shaky understanding of the word classics, the end of the age of superheroes, Eclipse Comics, The Eternals by Jack Kirby, our dream teams for our dream comics, Steve Englehart, Jason Shiga, Brandon Graham, Kate Beaton, Wally West, Firestorm, The Fire Elemental, Star Wars, and oh so much more. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. And we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan! Jeff! Graham! Gotta tell you, this might be a strange episode, listeners, because I have no idea why this is, but all day I've had the theme song for cheers in my brain. Oh, God. Graham, no. Right? It's terrible. It's one of the worst earworms. It's bad. I mean, there's actually kind of a whole bunch of 70s and early 80s themed songs that are just... Kind of brutal on you, yeah. Just bad, just bad. Um, yeah. So if I seem distracted, it's because in my mind I'm seeing a montage of old tiny drawings fading oh, in and out. Mm-hmm. I the, like the. I was going to sing the piano, but I'm not because then it'll go in your minds. So instead, we'll move on. Hi, listeners. I love the little pause as we wait for them to say hello. We're we're getting a little too Dora the Explorer here, perhaps. <laughs> Oh my god, that's wonderful. Hi, listeners! <laughs> Did you have a good day? <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. Um, we're not going to go full-on interactive there, everyone. You're probably safe. The The Q&A is about, is, is about as good a chance Some, as you're going to somewhere get. Somewhere it's really sad that we are not going full-on interactive. Uh, you know... You know, uh, yeah. it's it, it just... Law of averages, Jeff. Someone somewhere is going to be sad that we're not going full-on interactive. And to that person, we're sorry. Yes. Yeah, we certainly uh, are. I've told Jeff this in email, but now the rest of you can hear it. I read Spider-Gwen issue one this week on Marvel Unlimited, and I have to say under threat of physical violence <laughs> that I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. I thought it was a good comic. You, I seem to remember, Jeff, did not love it so much. You know, I no, right? uh, well, actually, Graham, it's it's a good thing you mentioned this because I was going to say what what happened with me was – kind of law of diminishing returns. I like the first issue, the first, I think, two issues of Spider-Gwen a lot. But each issue after that kind of dropped well, down the appeal a little bit for me. So I even think. though this is a Q&A episode, let's, let's do this super quickly because that was something I thought reading this. I thought this works. Uh, this is very charming. This is a very good comic. But it feels like a trick that you can't repeat often. And it feels like a trick that is entirely hooked around the creative team mm-hmm. and not the character. Mm. Interesting. Well, you know I, what I, mean? yes. I, I think, for mm-hmm. example, Squirrel Girl, and I love Squirrel Girl, mm-hmm. but I think Squirrel Girl can be done by other people. I think they've created enough of a framework yes. where the jokes could be done by other people mm-hmm. and it, it would work. Mm-hmm. What works for me about Spider-Gwen, or at least the first issue, is entirely the that particular writer artist combo mm-hmm. and colorist, I should say, because the colors are amazing. yeah, the colors are great in that. I think, um, but it's it's not it's individual. Their talents make it individual, but there's nothing in the format that makes an individual. 
And so I think, like, if a different writer came on, it would feel like a very different book immediately. Or if a different artist came on, it'd feel like a very different book, and the charm would be lost. Well, I... Uh, I mean, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see as as the issues go on. Because on the one hand, I mostly agree. I think, I think that that team is really... Um, appealing and they've they there there's a lot of stuff that clicks on that book on the other hand the book i wish that it i almost wish that it had like a stronger editor maybe or something because one of the things that i i was a little frustrated about with spider gwen as it went on is a they sort of relied a little too much on um for it's lack of a better term, no. yeah, the what ifisms. No, yeah, there's a, a there's a lot of that even in the first issue. Exactly, it's yeah. Officer Ben Grimm. It's yeah. Officer Frank Castle. I also like the idea that all the the characters you know will actually just be a police officers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, there is like they, they go to that well twice mm-hmm. in the first issue, which was actually kind of surprising. Yeah, but um, but like I said, I thought it was super charming. I, I I really enjoyed it. It'll be interesting to see if I also have love of diminishing returns. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I I also feel there's a there could be a they start with an okay base for characterization, but they don't really they don't get much of a chance to deepen it. It's a little bit of. Um, on the one hand, it's sort of it's very fast moving, which I think is uh, is definitely a plus. I, I think a lot of times with the spider variations on the Spider Man narrative can actually get a little too bogged down. I think. On the other hand, I feel that there is just not enough uh, character momentum there. the 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 character ends up being way too passive and reactive, and and I don't even necessarily have a very strong sense of who she is well, it, outside it was, of the scenarios. It know? was really interesting. It was the first issue where I was like, I feel like I'm reading a second issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which and, I, I was. They'd done Edge of Spider-Verse. Right. One shot before that. I mean, the first issue even starts the previously page. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which seems like a very fascinating way of doing a first issue. Yeah. Like, you've already missed something. Well, I, you know, I swear to God, this is so funny. It's like at some point we'll get to the questions. I, uh, like other people on the internet, many months ago, um, took advantage of a, uh, an error in an Amazon book listing and, uh, ordered for a ridiculously low amount of money the, uh, Spider-Verse hardcover. You know, oh, I know, yeah, I remember they were they were offering it for, for like stupidly low, right? Yeah, it was, it was something like, I think it was like, Twenty six dollars, twenty four dollars, or something. And it should have been like fifty. Or yeah, like, at least. Yeah. yeah, it's. I think. It, I think it's well over. You know, it should well be over sixty because it's. It's. It's something like two hundred and seventy four pages worth of stuff. I, I would love to go online and show how wrong I am on that. I'm. I'm looking online right now to find out how wrong you are. Oh, good. Fifty. <laughs> Amazon says it was fifty one seventy two, which is clearly an Amazon discount price because that's yeah. that's a very odd choice uh, price. Right. Uh, come on, come on, previews world, how much are you? Seventy five dollars. Yeah, yeah, seventy five bucks, and it was it was marked at twenty five, and it was a whole bunch of issues. I'm like, oh, hey, that's great. And I've always wondered if ever since that's part of the reason that Marvel made it 
easily, I would have to say, the worst organized trade I have ever read <laughs> in my life. I mean, I have slowly been reading it kind of piecemeal um, I, over I the course say, of the last month. Yeah, I've been slowly reading the Spider-Verse issues on Marvel Unlimited, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure it's the trade, Jeff. It might just be those stories are unreadable. <sighs> Horrific drag, I believe my yeah. phrase. <laughs> the, well, okay, let's put it this way. There has been the horrific drag. The, it, but it's, I don't know, believe me, Graham, it's, it's, it's really You're like, bad. I've read Horrific Drake, Graham. This is well, something else. Well, I mean, I would like to read all the way through it because, honestly, I know there were a lot of people that were were thrilled, kind of excited about the whole Spider-Verse crossover, and they thought that it was a really fun event. For myself, just the bulk of what I, I read, and, I mean, in theory, I'm through the quote-unquote main story uh, which they sort of they jam. That, 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 that's the horrific Drake I've been reading. I should point out. Uh, okay, because yeah, talking about the the dance lot issues, which are it, it takes navel gazing to a whole new level. Well, you know, it's one of those things where on the what? Well, part okay. There's there's so many things to unpack with it. The fact of the matter is, Slot and his collaborators spend a ridiculous amount of time on the villains and do a, an amazing job of making them no more uh, more interesting <laughs> after 60 pages i swear to oh, god yeah, yeah, material yeah. on but them one comes out generically and that's it i mean you have a multiverse of spider-man to play with mm-hmm. and you don't really do anything with any of the fucking characters no, no. it's like here's spider-man but he's a pig here's spider-man but he's british that's different, right? Well, actually, you know, that's one of the things that's really weird. Like the the, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's absolutely true. It's a it's amazing the amount of material. Like Dan Slott was like, "Hey, I came up with this great idea. We're going to tie in like characters. We're the the Ralph Bakshi Spider Man, the Spider Man and his amazing friends, the Spider Man from the Electric Company, the Spider Man from any of them. No, not at all. The closest you get is like Spider Punk, the Captain Britain Spider Man. Or no, no, the Captain Spider Universe Spider Man. Yeah, and because that's, that's also what I love. Could you come up with a name from? No, let's call them Spider UK. Yeah, Spider UK. I there it's it's there's just a variety of like misfires throughout the book, but part of me is is like maybe because there is a point where in kind of I thought sort of a well done um crossover fashion slot has points where it's like, okay, we've got to split up the teams because we've got like three different missions that each has to accomplish. And there's a little editor's note that's like, you know, con- you know, see Spider-Verse number one or see Spider-Verse yeah, so Spider-Gwen. Sp- follow this into... Yes, exactly. But then that stuff is jammed into a homogenous mass in the back. And I'm sorry, maybe part of it's me being lazy, but I refuse to treat fucking Spider-Verse crossover like Infinite Jest. I'm not going to use like fucking two sets of bookmarks to like jump through like crossover hoops. It's just really collected badly. There's a reading order in the beginning of the trade. This is hilarious. There's a reading order in the beginning of the trade that is broken into two columns. That, and I'm like, 
I don't understand. Like, one of them's like the Spider-Verse stories, the pre-Spider-Verse stories. And then they've got all these other events. And it's and I'm like, couldn't you put page numbers next to these? No. Fuck no. Why, of course why not. Why would you want page numbers, Jack? Come I, on. I, it really is one of those. It's, it, is, it is awesome. I really have to give it up for Marvel in that sense of... For for them to basically, I can't help but feel they were like, oh, all these, like, we've got, you know, 5,000 copies that Amazon are going to have to sell at a loss. You know what? Let's let's just take that contents page out, you know? Let's. <laughs> oh, that's so nice that you think they had a contents page to begin with. Oh, I know, right? You know, talk about naivete. Um, well, we're going to have many more bitchy things, I think, to talk yes, about with Marvel but coming up after. Here, I think. After doing our 11 minutes of, mm-hmm. of actually talking about comics, which we never normally do when we do a regular way <laughs> once, <laughs> uh, we should get on to the Q&As, right? Yeah. Let us cue our little A's out. Uh, okay, do you want to start with Chris, or should I start with Chris? Ba, ba, ba. Um, yeah, well, why don't you why don't you start with Chris? Yeah, Chris Carfora asks, actually he asks four questions. He does. And the first one's a bit of a stumper that I, in my traditional way, uh, I'm going to snarkly yet seriously get out of the way very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to your serious response. Have we reached the end of the age of superhero comics, he asked. Seems like superhero Did you just are... say yes underneath your breath? I don't know if people... No, would have... no I really didn't. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> All right. uh, especially because my answer is no, Jeff. Oh, okay. Uh, Thank you. Seems I'm like superhero like... movies are going through a bit of a golden age, but I can't say the same for the comics. With the reboots coming every two years now, it just feels like creators are constantly going over old territory and rehashing old ideas. Is there just not anything left to say about superheroes? With the rise of independent comics and the availability of self-published comics through Comixology and the like, do you foresee a shift away from superhero comics? Jeff, take it on. Okay. You didn't want to give your quick glib and then let me babble on and on? Okay. My quick glib is, no, it's not the end of superhero comics because, sure, like, even if you take everything that is stated in question as true, and I don't, I disagree with some of it, um, the market is still rewarding superhero comics more than anything else and is set up to to make that happen. Mm. So uh, until... Something dramatic happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's not the end of superhero comics whatsoever. Uh, and what is already a rigged game uh, becomes more and more rigged. When you look at you know the order incentives that retailers have to hit in order to get you know variants for for, I mean especially Marvel, but you know DC's got their one in five thousand Jim Lee variant for Dark Knight. Right. Um, God, wait, one in how many? 5,000, Jeff. One <laughs> 5,000. And Marvel, because Marvel, let's not forget, are trolls. <laughs> Spot by doing a 1 in 4,999 variant for a Deadpool comic. Oh my god. Because again, Marvel are trolls. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's, it is, I, uh, that, that's a good, good talking point. It's a good time. Uh, we'll get a chance. But yeah, so no, no, we've not reached the end of superhero comics. Um, and to be fair, like, you know, with the rise of independent comics and the availability of self-published comics, they've always been there. Mm-hmm. But always. But they've been there for the last 30, 40 years. Um, and I'm not necessarily sure that they are any more popular or widely read now. Uh, that's not true. You've got the, the, the true mainstream market, the bookstore market, which has roundly 
uh, dismissed superheroes as, a, as the dominant genre. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's what this question is asking. I think this question is asking more in terms of the drag market. And the drag market is set up to sell superhero comics. So no. Jeff, do your more serious answer. Okay. Uh, my more serious answer, and yours yours was pretty serious. I expected it to be one of those very... You want to be like, no, ha ha. Exactly. <laughs> the Graham glib. Uh, no, I... Okay, I think that, uh, unlike you, I think that Chris might be asking... Maybe not even as much from the direct market or a market perspective, but from the perspective of literally uh, artistically saying stuff about superheroes. And um, I think actually uh, I would also have to say no, that we have oh, not really? reached the end of the age. No, no. I, th- I think what's what's currently going on as far as I can tell is when you look at the direct market, the direct market – Marvel and DC, and especially Marvel and DC's policies about um, creator ownership and participation, I feel that that superheroes feel like they're treading water because I think for the most part, a lot of people have no wish to create new superheroes in that marketplace and invest in inject new blood into the system and. I think that stuff is really necessary. I mean, people have heard me go on about this before on other podcasts, but I think it's it's really probably not a surprise that the 90s in Marvel uh, had a real infusion um, of characters created in the 70s turning around and hitting their stride. And it's not surprising now that there are characters that are that were created right before a lot of the image creators uh, left for image, um, created a bunch of stuff at Marvel that is now, you know, hitting it big as well. <laughs> you, Sorry, you've just reminded me that Marvel's actually publishing a star-branded Nightmask Oh, yeah, the star-branded Nightmask, right? Yeah, which... I don't know. You know, part of me is like, I, but yeah, so, and that really does sort of touch on, there's a lot of ground that both Marvel and DC were able to do in terms of a lot of rampant creation of characters from the 70s, you know, even 80s, and like I said, the last little burst of the 90s. As that stuff has sort of diminished, um, I feel that it's it's kind of uh, sort of um, unavoidable that we are stuck in a rut. Also, additionally, both Marvel and DC are in situations where they have had their characters around for long enough that they have contracted um, the amount of things that you are able to do with the characters, you know, Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, these are characters that that up to a certain point appear to age and progress. And then that became, you know, very consciously uh, undone as DC sort of – DC, even in the process of rebooting things at least the first few times, kept – bits and pieces sometimes um unfortunately so of legacy characters and i feel that for example legacy characters are a great way to talk about characters changing you know uh, about about people aging about uh the differences in the times about i don't know like sometimes good stuff to say about families and fathers and sons and mothers you know there's there's an entire realm the older i get 
the more the superhero seems to me to be an, an amazing way to talk about, this is going to sound weird, but the process of maturity. And I suppose the, as you get older, there's a lot of reconciliations that you have to make. I would say about your public self and your private self. And I feel that superheroes are, um, ridiculously good vehicles for being able to, to do something like that. I mean, I mean, it, it was back in the eighties, but Alan Moore was, you know, it not even really putting a lot of energy into playing with the idea of Miracle Man being, you know, Mickey Moran's sort of midlife crisis and trying to reconcile the ideas of, of becoming a, a father you know, stuff that, that we just really have, have barely touched. So, so for me, I think that there is a shit ton of stuff that people can say about superheroes. I think the problems are traditionally in the marketplace. It is very hard to get any of that work into the big two. And it, frankly, I think it will get more difficult. I think without new characters to actually reflect interests of the current generation, I think it also becomes uh, it, it, it sort of creeps towards stagnation. And, um, I think that unfortunately, and I know I'm guilty of this, it is very hard to launch new characters and new universes in contexts that really can make people care. Like I spent, it was, it was with a ridiculous amount of, um, slothful interest that I pursued, uh, Mark Wade's um, uh, irredeemable. And frankly, he's got a whole, you know, sort of thing about fathers and sons going on in, um, I'm the stinky sidekick book. I can't remember the, uh, that is irredeemable. No, it's, uh, oh God. Cause he's named them all so similarly. I can't remember that. I know it's, exactly. It's like, I, in fact, I'm like, encourageable. Am I just making that name? Up? What's it called? <laughs> Thrill by Quick, one. Let's just start. Yeah, exactly. Let's just start making up the names. Um, there's like incorrigible. There's uh incorruptible. There's like incontinent. Uh, I, I don't know. What, what, what is it? It's like Mark. I, I tried to go to Thrillbent, uh, and Thrillbent. Bad news, Mark Wade just told me that it wasn't up, but that was a lie. Oh, insufferable. Uh, it's called insufferable. Right. Which, so insufferable, which is a book that I'm like, I even read a portion of it. God help me. I have a pity subscription to Thrill Bent that I've, you know, sort of been keeping on for like months now. Uh, and I'm, and every day I'm like, I'm going to sit down and catch up with those like 58 chapters of insufferable, but, but I'm not. And Are so I'm, though? what's that? Are you though? <laughs> Am I, am I ever going to sit? I don't know, Graham. That is, that is a toughie. I, I honestly think I would love to be able to, in the next year, put together a list of everything that I'm reading and people can actually bet on what I will actually read and win no, awards. No, 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 no. You should put together you know? a list of everything you're reading and people should nominate what you actually have to read for the. No, the... I know. They did that and I so failed them. I was like, hey, no, here's no, no, I mean, like, I, I mean, stick to it, Jeff. You, you just don't understand me at all, Graham. After all these years. Uh, so with the rise of independent comics and the availability of self-published comics through Comixology and the like, do you see a, foresee a shift away from superhero comics? Uh, I think that it would be great if 
the comics industry got more diverse and I believe that it is. But that being said, it, to me, it, a, a really weird thing, it, at least at this point, is a little bit like saying just because there are now electric cars, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're getting rid of gas, gas powered cars anytime soon. And it, un, un, unlike superheroes, I actually feel that gas powered cars are a little more destructive to the environment. So I wish that was happening soon, but I think, I think that the more that we get people coming into the industry and the more people who are checking out books and reading everything, I personally think all boats are going to rise, and that actually tends to include superheroes. Let's bang through the next three as quickly as possible. Yes. Uh, what, Chris, this is still Chris. What would be your dream creative collaboration on your dream comic? Right. Uh, do, do you want to read the whole thing, that other part? We'll yeah, okay. Yeah. Just to clarify, it can be past creators or current. So if you want Grant Morrison and Jack Kirby on Challengers of the Unknown, go for it. And that's kind of where I... Because I find questions like this very difficult to answer. Yeah. Um, and one that came to mind mm -hmm. is I would like 1980s Peter Milligan and 1980s Brendan McCarthy to do Forever People. Oh, wow. Oh, that's such a great choice, Graham. Wow. But you know what I mean? Like, specifically, like, the 80s versions of both of both creators. Right. Right. You know, I've got, I, I had, I made a go-to list, like, one of my, like, second or third fanboy rampages that I wrote for the Comics Experience newsletter was kind of like, oh, here's some ideal teams that I would love to see. That was just kind of done like half his jokes, I think. But, but, a but lot that's of what you, you come up with the ones where you're like, I actually would read that. Yeah. So for me, I... Um, Let's see what I can remember. I definitely remember because – and, and the reason why I'm a little hand-wringing about this is sometimes it involves dragging in characters and people who are doing great work on their own outside the realm of – Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. So – Yeah. Like I've got Kevin Huzenga and Frank Quitely doing Metamorpho in my <laughs> dream. My see, that's great. <laughs> Mention that. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful combo. Yeah. Um. So for me, like I made a joke that I wanted to see Milo Manera do Betty and Veronica, but of course I don't think I've really do anymore now that I'm, I don't know, old and not nearly. I would love to see Gilbert Hernandez do Dick Tracy. I would love to see oh, him write and draw uh, Dick Tracy. I'd love to see Jim Woodring write and draw a Captain Marvel story, or at least write one. I think he would be sort of his, his, his handle with like dream logic and sort of the way that the, the Captain Marvel stories work, I think would be great. I'll be honest, Grant Morrison and Jack Kirby on Challenges of the Unknown sounds fabulous, although knowing Morrison, he would be much more excited to do uh, Newsboy Legion, I think, with Kirby. And I think I think a Newsboy Legion from Kirby and Morrison set now, like now, now, I think would be kind of amazing. And the one thing that I did want to say, it's not really something that made me happy that I'm like totally dying to see, but I realized like, this is kind of sound weird, but like Steve Gerber, I never realized this until after uh, he passed, but he was a huge um, fan of the adventures of Superman TV show, you know? And I would love like, in somewhere up there in heaven, the idea that Steve Gerber and Alex Ross are doing an Adventures of Superman comic with the likenesses of the George Reeves characters from the TV show, I think that would make Gerber really happy. Oh, so I, I had a list also, for this. Also, I think this. you just killed Alex Ross. <laughs> I, 
you know, I, I'm saying it's aren't we all already dead, Graham? If you think about it, at least on the inside, uh, Jim Steranko doing Diabolic, Alejandro Yordorowski writing the sequel to Batman Eternal, uh, Tony Daniel <laughs> writing and drawing Hawk and Dove. Um, Wait, who I, writing and drawing Hawk and Dove? Uh, 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 Tony Daniel. Um, doing what? That. No, what? You know, it's not my fault that you don't like him. Matt Fraction on <laughs> Spider Man, uh, Michelle Fief, uh, writing and drawing The Question, Philippe, uh, Smith writing and drawing a Jubilee comic, Marion Churchwood drawing Conan and or Elric and or an ongoing Conan Elric team up book. Um, <laughs> you really, really put some thought into this. Yeah, this is, I'm like, oh, my list, I found it. Jason Aaron and Jason Latour doing an unofficial tie in book to Southern Bastards, which would be Razorback from Marvel. Do you remember Razorback? Vaguely? He was a guy was the... that dressed like a big pig and he drove a pickup truck and yes. solved and answered, you know, cries for help on his CB radio. Yeah, I only remember him because he showed up in a couple of issues of John Byrne's She-Hulk. Ah, uh, yeah, right, where he probably sort of took him like a joke. But he appeared kind of – there was that amazing no, era wait, of like – there was a time where he was not a joke? Oh, I'm sure he was. Like I genuinely joke. thought that he was a joke character, like he was created – to be a joke. He might have been a joke character, but I think it was during that weird era of um, Spider-Man villains slash characters. So, like, he was clearly as much of a joke as the hypno-hustler, but they also treated him more or less straight for the first couple of appearances, if you know what I mean. I think he had some early appearances. Spectacular Spider-Man Volume 1, Issue 13. I was you going know, to say. Goodwin, Bill Mantlo, and Sal Buscema. Exactly. Exactly. He was called Buford T. Hollis. Yeah, I remembered the Buford part, and I couldn't remember the Hollis part. Anyway, that just seems like such a no-brainer. I cannot... Um, I had a mark of, like, Brian Lee O'Malley on the Legion of Superheroes. Like, I mean, that's the sort of weird shit that uh, Al Ewing on the Amazing Spider-Man, Deadpool, and or anything else he wants. Uh, <laughs> Al, no, I've said this before. Al Ewing and Henry Flynn on Fantastic Four. I would read in a fucking second. Wow. That would be really interesting. With Henry Flynn, huh? Yeah. Wow. Hmm. I, I think he's got – I think – I mean, I think Al's a great writer. Mm-hmm. But I think when he's got Henry Flynn with him – and I think the same is also true of Rob Williams, by the way. Uh, I think he ups his game. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I know you're seriously behind on 2080 right now. Mm-hmm. But um, did, you, did you read Judge Dread Titan last year? Yes. Yeah, I did, there, which was so, great. So uh, Rob Williams and Henry Flynn have done like a two-part sequel to that, uh-huh. which is just phenomenal. Mm. Like jaw-droppingly great <laughs> and you could and i i've really come around to rob williams writing recently right i, I think the, the martian manhunter series he's doing for dc is is fascinating hmm. um but there's something I, I just feel like working with flint there's something going on that he's like okay i really am upping my game mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's it's another of those dread stories where you're like this could only be done with dread you know it can I- only be done with a 30-year continuity but also a strip that is perfectly willing to go, we're going to kill off half of the city. Yeah, I don't know. It, that'd be interesting. I, I definitely, part of me is like, I'd love to see Al Ewing hit, like mesh with someone that's a little more... Um, classically Marvel? Classically Marvel, exactly. Because I, I feel like 
if it, if it works right. And I mean, that's the thing that's sad. I mean, we've probably, it's probably been so long that he's been drawing that people are like, what are you talking about? Greg Land is classically Marvel, which is the, the saddest. <laughs> well, well, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, Amy Bender, the novelist, mm-hmm. and Pascal Ferry on uh, Machine Man. Oh, wow. Oh, that's very nice. That's very nice. Ah, uh, man, I feel like I've got to somehow like top that somehow. I really want to see Thomas Pynchon do the <laughs> Inferior Five comic with um ah, with S. Clay Wilson on art. Okay, I lost it there. The what cancelled or lapsed title would you most like to see resurrected? Uh, was that part of this question? That's the third. Oh, what canceled or la- Oh, you know, honestly, this is really dumb, but I am still annoyed that, uh, I would love to see the end of that six million dollar man series for season six that I read like and bought all, you know, all these Wait, issues on discount. What's that? Did it not finish? No, no, it didn't finish. <laughs> no, that's the thing. I guess you didn't read my piece on Comicsology. They do no. the whole season. It goes on for like, I don't remember how many issues and then it, and then it ends in like mid story. They don't, they don't wrap anything up. It's all just dangling there. And they haven't announced if they're going to do more at all. In fact, so I, I say they're the, at this point because that, it's like two years old now. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty, it's dead. So, but in, that, but for they, me, they did, um, Dynamite did their Battlestar Galactica series with Dan Abnett and that like suddenly got a sequel like a year later for absolutely no reason. So it was like Galactica 1980. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Galactica 1980. That is awesome. The Super Scouts. Uh, so, yes, I would love to see the, the end of that $6 million man series with James Couric with full art by Alex Ross, not just the covers, because I think, I think honestly, the, the art was problematic on, on $6 million man. And yourself, Graham? I am going to cheat by saying a title that was while cancelled. Uh, for my money, stalled with the second issue. Mm. Uh, New Guardians by Steve Englehart and Joe Staten. Mm. In my, to my mind, it stalled because Englehart left after plotting the second issue. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And the first issue and the plot of the second issue are so fucking wonderful. <laughs> the fact that it was never followed up on mm-hmm. really makes me sad. Uh, people, you know my love of Millennium. New Guardians is a spin-off series from that featuring The Chosen um, who are, you know, Tumblr 20 years early. <laughs> you can instead up is this, Jeff. It's a team where there is no white straight male on it. Yes. But there's a white straight male in the book, and he's the bad guy who is trying to make everyone into being white and straight and kill off everyone else. Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. The villain of the first issue is the hemoglobin an AIDS vampire? Yes. Yeah. Issue that... <laughs> Villain of the second issue, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Oh God, I was talking to him about. I was talking to Adam Neve about him the other day, and I can't remember his name again. I want to say he's called Snowflame, and he gets his powers by snorting cocaine. Oh wow! Wow! Right? Yeah. Imagine where Agar could have gone with this series. <laughs> yes, Graham. Let's. Let's. No, it's so great. <laughs> and, uh, Carrie Bates comes in to, to take over uh, with the scripting of the second and then stays on all the way through the 12th issue, uh, which is when it got cancelled. Staten bails after, I want to say, issue seven? 
Hmm. It might be later. Um, to be replaced by Pat Broderick. And what started as just inspired lunacy quickly becomes a run-of-the-mill superhero comic that then turns into a drag to read. Yeah. And that's even with the end being that the uh, super-powered white straight racist has been breeding subhumans that he's going to give superpowers to so that they can destroy everyone else who isn't white and straight, but they turn out to be the future of humanity. The end. Wow. Right? Even with that ending, it's still dull as shit. But the first two issues are amazing. Ah, amazing. Graham, I have to say, if you were able to corner DC and pitch it as Tumblr the comic, you could probably get this thing relaunched. At this point, I really probably could. Uh, well, that's true because everyone's like, there's a whole uh, Rich's bad girling is going away at DC, which was a spectacular one man crusade by Rich to try and create that story. Uh, you know, let, you know, let's get around to this because it is very interesting. I have a, I have, I have tons of what the kids used to call feels about yes. the the current oh, Marvel Studio stories. We're doing, yeah, we're doing the Q and A that we think the wrong week. We could yeah. talk about DCU. We could talk about Ike Perlmutter uh, out to Marvel Studios. Uh, um, okay. I think we might get a chance to, to, to wedge some of that stuff in here. I think. Chris's fourth question. Yeah. Uh, in what way has the rise of Marvel and Limited's comicsology and other digital platforms changed the industry? Is this change a good thing? Uh, the second question first. Yes, it is. Anything can get people access to comics is a great thing. Yeah. I, 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 I agree with that. I think it's also worth mentioning that my understanding is is that Marvel Unlimited and Comixology and a lot of other digital platforms are very much the second wave of I guess digital influence. Like kind of kind of when music piracy was going through the roof and iTunes kind of slowly was put in place. I felt looking at places like Scans Daily or hearing people talk about stuff on, on torrents that that comics torrenting had already been in the process of um, altered the industry. I think more significantly than Marvel Unlimited. Oh, sure, yeah. Those things. I, I think those things, in that sense, are more a response to that. I think. Yeah. Um, yes. And I don't know. I mean, honestly, I feel that – I almost feel that it's currently a little too soon to tell. I mean, the one thing that I – that there's a number of um, – uh, if you want to ignore the silver linings, I think there's a way that one can find clouds behind Marvel Unlimited and Comixology both. Oh, sure. I mean, nothing ever goes out of print now. Yeah. Nothing... And the royalty system is atrocious. Yeah, the royalty system is atrocious. I don't think any of that stuff is being tracked. Uh, Comixology has a completely ridiculously um, uh, bad monopoly on the digital distribution in a way. The, the, and the fact that it's Amazon on top of it you know, owning Comixology just makes it like way, way worse. Um, did you see my tweets the other day, Graham, about uh, about the Kindle editions of of the Marvel books? No, and I wish I had, seeing as I've been 
working through the Kindle edition of Skull Slayer. Yay! What, what what did you say? Well, this is this is essentially what I found out was that Skull the Slayer, as I as I mentioned in my recent column for the website and when I when I gifted you the book, the digital Kindle edition of Skull the Slayer is nine dollars and ninety nine cents on Amazon. It is nineteen dollars and ninety nine cents on Comixology. There is a $10 difference for reasons that are absolutely make no sense to me. The Weird World collection that came out recently, um, collecting the old Weird World stuff to tie into the Secret Wars, that is $19.99 on Comixology. It is $9.99 on the Kindle. Um, so what I'm saying is I should just buy everything on the Kindle. Well, that's it. The, it's There are weird areas where it's not the case. Like if you look at the... Um, the recolored uh, Iron Fist collection, you know, the Marvel, whatever they're calling the Marvel Apple co- Epic collections. Yeah, the Marvel Epic collections. Like in print, it's like twenty-seven dollars. I think it's twenty-five dollars on the Kindle, and then maybe it's like really close to like twenty-seven dollars on Comicsology. But if you look, there is there are a number of books that are crazily low priced on the Kindle. For reasons that make no sense to me whatsoever, and again, the difference between the two, considering that the comicsology is not price matching with the Kindle, is very strange. And and unfortunately, for those of us who may remember, you know, Jerry Conway had a huge, huge uh, tirade about how Amazon buying comicsology meant that it was. Basically, the death of comicsology that that Amazon was just going to slowly smother the baby in the crib and drive everyone to um, to their Kindle platform. I don't know if it's that exactly, but I have to say it is really, really odd looking at things, uh, collections with a $10 price difference and absolutely no... It's not even like they're marked on sale or anything. They're just sitting there. And there's a variety of books that you can find across different publishers. Both Dark Horse and DC have some collections that are shockingly low-priced on the Kindle. And I I cannot figure out sort of like... What it it is, Jeff, is if you own a Kindle and you buy a comic collection on the Kindle, they're giving you that $10 because they know that it's going to be a painful as fuck experience reading the book. It kind of is, right? I mean, the few times I've sat down and read comics on the Kindle, I've kind of regretted it. It's been a pain, which is a shame, because at one point I was like, oh my god, all these, like, Judge Dredd collections, you know... Yeah, are, are like, like super... Well, I was going to say super cheap. Maybe not super cheap, but definitely cheap. Compared to the print editions, yeah. I, yeah. Was, I was buying... I bought, like, a whole pop of those. And then when I was reading them, I'm like, I can't bookmark this. I can't expand the pages on this. Yeah, I not can't... Not just can't bookmark or expand the pages. Like, it's definitely for Skull the Slayer. Mm-hmm. First of all, it almost crushed my Kindle twice. <gasps> really? Uh, and then, like, getting between pages is staggeringly slow. Yeah. Dumping everything else off the fucking Kindle in case it was a memory issue. No shit. Oh, Jesus. Wow. Because wow. that's, that's what it is. Kindle, or at least my Kindle Fire, does not like anything beyond, like, a 30-page a comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's some weird stuff. People have heard me rant about the fact that there's so much manga available from Viz 
for relatively low prices on the Kindle. Oh, and this is this is what I find fascinating. They're actually Viz will not have links to their books on Amazon, which I found fascinating when I was poking around on their website. They'll like link like if you go to something like Drifting Classroom, they're like read this on iBooks and I don't know Scribd, and they had like three or four different choices, but but they definitely left the Amazon editions off. And the Amazon editions, as everyone has heard me go on and on about for manga and some of the double page spreads, are not great. It's a really it was you know they came up with a print device and then they have no interest in really doing in theory they worked to try and do some stuff with children's books that made them a little ugly but at least dealable like i had our uh, my my 3 year old niece over we had her over for a sleepover and it was you know reading her books i had all these curious george things that i could read on the kindle and the ipad and it kind of worked, but it, I have to say it worked a lot better than if I had tried to open up one of my Kindle comic, like, yeah, got, there's, it's super weird. Yeah. I, I paid, I paid like, I don't know, like 10 bucks for like the Gotham central first volume or something. It was really cheap considering what the price was for the actual collection. It was, it was on sale and it was such a bad reading experience that I just gave up and I'm pretty much planning on buying them on Comixology because I'm, because I'm, I'm crazed. Basically. Exactly. Cause you have to keep buying them. Yeah. Well, of course, Graham. That's pretty much required. Uh, Carlos Aguilar. Yes. Let me read these to you, Graham, and you can reply. Okay, then. I replied to the last ones as well, Jeff. No, I know. But, you know, and in fact, you probably replied first. But, one, let's say Image was formed in the 80s instead of the 90s. What seven artists would you have liked to have seen leave Marvel, and if you want, DC, to form Image about 10 years earlier? Frank Miller, John Byrne, George Perez. Nice. Uh, Mike Golden. Mm-hmm. That's four. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Who else? Simonson. Mm-hmm. Well, Simonson. Five. Chicken. Six. Uh, and I don't know where to go for the seventh. R. Adams, but he's kind of too late for the for the era I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, who? Cockrum, uh, uh, maybe? Oh, interesting. That'd be an interesting choice. My answer was... I basically did my version of a what if and pretended that I was visiting an alternate world where the people who were involved with the WAP newsletter um, and uh, for people I, it's, that was words and pictures. And it was a newsletter that had been formed by Frank Miller, Bill Sinkovich and Steve Gerber and Stephen Grant, I think among others to basically talk about the shitty treatment that was going on of uh, creatives in the um, the big two at the time. And it was kind of a bite the hand that feeds thing. And at the same time, coming stemming from that around the time that DC announced that it was going to put a labeling system on comics, which I think we talked mm-hmm. about just last time, which ended up having a variety of people leave, including Alan Moore, but also Marv Wolfman ended up being forced to resign uh, as editor for for um, speaking out against the um, the the labeling. So in my alternate world, what happens is the people involved in the WAP newsletter and the DC protests um, end up attracting enough attention that money people give them um, the money to basically form 
their own company, their early version of image that would be a unionized shop in which they publish their own work. So that would mean basically Steve Gerber, Frank Miller, Bill Sienkiewicz, um, Stephen Bissett, John Totalbin, Alan Moore, um, Steve Grant, Michael Zulli, and Steve Murphy of Puma Blues, Marv Wolfman, uh, and weirdly enough, Dave Sim. So uh, it goes on to attract more people, a lot of the people who step up for the Creator's Bill of Rights later, which is where actually I pulled some of those other names, uh, end up getting involved in this new proto-image. So you end up with Scott McCloud there. Um, you end up with Eastman and Laird bringing, you know, so basically it ends up, it's sort of an image slash proto-tundra, but it actually works instead of <laughs> exploding <laughs> in to. spectacular fashion. Yeah, tundra, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, question two. Tons of Star Wars news coming out. So let's say you got to pick creative teams for four different Star Wars books. What would the four titles be and who would you have working on them? Man, this is such a fantasy baseball episode. Uh, uh, well, we're recording this the day before First Friday. Uh, so first of all, fuck Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? I'm so burnt out. <laughs> it's, I was saying this to Kate earlier on. I was like, Star Wars isn't coming out for like three and a half months. Mm-hmm. And I'm already sick of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what would your four titles be? Uh, I'm... Uh, I I really like Star Wars the movies. Mm-hmm. I like a bunch of Star Wars comics, mm-hmm. but I don't think I'm enough of a Star Wars fan to answer this properly. I'm pretty I... much like, sure, I really like Stuart Eminem in Star Wars, and I'm glad there's a like. I think Kieran Gillen's doing a great job writing the Darth Vader book, right? But yeah, well, okay. So for me, definitely. I mean, it's it's sort of a little bit of. I was incredibly happy with weirdly, weirdly happy slash satisfied. Like, oh, this really scratches my itch with Jason Aaron and John Cassidy's Star Wars. That really worked for me. Interestingly enough, I read the first two issues of Karen Gillan's uh, Darth Vader series on Marvel Unlimited because they they're both out. And I was yeah. very excited to to read it, and it's interesting. I didn't realize how closely it crosses over with the main Star Wars title. And yet, maybe it's because of the art. I think it's Salvador La Roca, right? It's, uh, it is Salvador La Roca. You know, and it's interesting. I I have my problems with Salvador La Roca, but usually uh, his storytelling is not one of them. Um, and for whatever reason, there were some storytelling choices that he made especially during the action sequences in those two issues that um, just just kind of did not – it didn't fry my burger. There, there is something where the, the lightsaber scenes mm-hmm. in particular are odd. But I have to say yes. overall, I prefer Darth Vader to Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. I'm A, I'm not surprised. And B, uh, of, I finished those two issues and went, well, of course I don't really – they didn't really work for me. Because I'm a terrible person, but that's that's you are a terrible true. person. I am. Um, my I'm trying, others... to, I'm trying to think of four titles or four creators. I, uh, Darwin Cook on Boba Fett. You know, it's so funny. I was trying to. I'm like, God damn it! Who do I want to see uh, on Boba Fett? 
And because you was, know that Boba, like there, there is a, a series to be done for Boba Fett. Oh, completely, completely. Although it's fascinating for Boba me Fett and or the bounty hunters in general. I very much saw saw Boba Fett as as more of a almost um, Euro influenced book. You know what sure. I mean? So, sure. yeah. so uh, yeah. In my brain, I was like, oh man, who are those guys who are like doing the art, like like. The guy who did the art with uh, Yordorowski is uh, the bouncer. I can't even remember the name of the artist. Um, but, you know, s- some of the dudes like that, some of the humanoid dudes. Uh, like you, you just made me think Fabio Moon and Gabriel Bad doing Boba Fett. Okay. I'd, yeah, I'd, that I'd would be that. great. Yeah. Absolutely. That would be great. You know, I, I do think also it's worth pointing out that I would have to say that the we're at the point where we sh- should acknowledge the most successful – um, Star Wars comic book artist, cartoonist, as far as I can tell, is Jeffrey Brown, you know? Oh, yeah, because he's for his, his uh, Darth Vader's kids books. Yeah, the, like all of those kids books, those those are those sell huge. He's clearly a fan. Um, so it would be kind of interesting to see what the what the hell he would end up doing. Um you know, of course, I'm like, yeah, sure, put put Jason Shiga on a C-3PO and R2-D2 book, like a <laughs> droids book, you know? It's I, like, I, whereas I was like, put Richard Carbon on a Chewbacca book. Oh, man. There you go. That would be <laughs> great, wouldn't it? Just because ah. I want to see how he draws Chewbacca. That's it. I, I wouldn't want to read a Chewbacca book, but I would want to see Carbon draw Chewbacca a lot. That would be that would be pretty awesome. That would be pretty awesome. I don't know. I mean, you know, those questions. It's like, it's tough. I I, I have enough affection for the source material to not come up with like dumb jokes, but mm-hmm. not enough to come up with like ones where I've really seriously thought about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. I, I'm I'm sort of I'm very much the same. I mean, the the fact is, like, uh, for example, I mentioned the Six Million Dollar Man series. Like James Kurick. I apologize if I'm getting your name wrong. That dude needs to get more work writing stuff and he should be getting more licensed books. But I think this is the thing that's hard is, is again, my, you know, that the hand wringing portion of our show is brought to you by Jeff, uh, is, is always like, I'm like, ah, like putting very talented people on the Star Wars franchise is that classic case of like, uh, but does it really serve – you know what I mean? It just serves yeah. the Star Wars franchise. It's, yeah. It's like really – I mean, you know, they'll probably get a lot of money in royalties. Right. Exactly. But, but I want to see there was something on Bleeding Cool this week that was pretty much like – but don't forget, like Jason Aaron's going to get more money from doing the Southern Bastards than he is from Star Wars. Now, and if and if that is really true considering how high Star Wars sells, because I mean – at least that first issue was something close to they should pay him something like 90s royalties amount of money for that. Um, but they won't. Well, see, and that's it. And if they don't, yeah, I mean, then absolutely. But they for all manner of reasons. One, Marvel is not set up that way. Two, it's a licensed book. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure there is very particular special math for the Star Wars books that is essentially – even if it sells a lot, you're still not going to make a lot of royalties because we have to be Lucas. I, I do love reading stories now, like people talking about their time in the 90s. Like, I don't know, I think I was reading some piece with like Alan Grant and he was just talking about like his kind of like, I was thinking about leaving the book, but then I realized it was coming up on the 500th issue of Detective and there was no way I was going to leave before that issue came out, you know? So yeah. I'm like, ah. Uh, you, you know who I'd want to see doing Star Wars, actually? Mm-hmm. I'd want to see Walt Simonson doing something again. 
Because the Walt Simons and Tom Palmer are uh, between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back in yeah. the original Marvel run right. is just blindingly good. Mm-hmm. And I would be really curious to see what uh, Simonson would do now. <sighs> and, and for my money, he could write it as well. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, absolutely. Give him, a, absolutely. give him him the era between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. Right. And just say, go to town with whatever characters you want in that era, whatever stories you want to tell. Yeah, have fun. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Uh, know, it's, it's... Hey, Jeff. Yes. Question three. Oh yes, question three, Graham. Who would you like to see run the new incarnation of heavy metal instead of Grant Morrison? Jeff Lester. <laughs> That's really funny. I'd be terrible at it. Uh, I thought Brandon Graham. What's that? Oh, for heavy metal? Well, you're too kind. You're too kind. Um. I would love to do some version of like, uh, like 2000 AD, like not 2000 AD because I don't know the characters and I'd run them into the ground in about ten minutes. But man, if you gave me like a revived uh, action or something like that, so that I could work in Hook John and then work in a bunch of other stuff, and yeah. Mm-hmm. But heavy metal, yeah that that would be that would be a tough one. I I think Brandon Graham has a very strong grasp of what makes heavy metal material, yeah. you know? And and I think he's actually very good at the right mix of sort of thought-provoking science fiction, you know, stuff that just doesn't wasn't created after someone watched a, a late-night TV show, but, you know, but also is, like, sort of visually compelling. So I, I, and he has, he has a great uh, address book, so... Right, exactly. And he just, he knows a ton of people, so... I think uh, along similar lines, mm-hmm. but also not similar lines. Uh, I'd be really curious to see what Douglas Walk would do with it, mm. because he is enough of a comics theorist and a comics historian, right? That the idea of just giving him heavy metal, right, and saying do the best heavy metal you can. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'd be super curious to see how he would define heavy metal and who he thinks, because he's he's as a critic is very engaged with both quote-unquote mainstream and alternative mm-hmm. creators. I'd be really, really interested to see. I would want to give it to uh, not a creator, but a critic, I think. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, okay. actually, I have to say, in sort of a sort of a film comment sort of way, it would be kind of cool to, to see what, what they do as a cu- curator title like that. Yeah. I would, I would be kind of curious to see what uh, Warren Ellis would do with uh, heavy metal. Uh, running that for a year. I mean, part of me is like, you really have to, you have to come up with sort of the platonic ideal of Warren Ellis, like the guy who actually like hits his deadlines and shows up and stuff. But he also has a tremendous address book, I think. Sure. Yeah. Strong sense. And, and he also has a very, um, uh, he's a a very strong theorist. Very strong. Exactly. A strong theorist slash semi historian that, that would be really fun to, to bring onto that. You know, yeah. Um, or Miley Cyrus. Uh, so let's. But <laughs> Max Brown asks not a question, yeah. but a request for Jeff. Uh, it's been a little while since Jeff has posted or talked about Jishin Shiga's Demon, and since it was Jeff that got me and a bunch of others reading it, it would be great to hear his thoughts on how the book has gotten <laughs> one to the, sorry ten to the power of eight times more dangerous and awesome since then. And on the recent announcement, the first segment will be publishing it in collections. 
And he says, thanks. And I have to say, thank you, Max Brown, because I hadn't actually heard that First Second was going to be publishing it in collections until you mentioned it in your question, which I was like, this is great news. Um, I will be candid. I read the first 12 issues of Demon kind of all at a stretch, more or less. Maybe it was like nine, and then I was reading it every month up to 12. Yeah, it was, because that was when you were like, you have to read it, you have to read it, you have to read it. Exactly. so on there, yeah. Yeah, and 12... uh, 12 felt like the end. Yeah, twelve. well, 12 felt like the end, but it was also one of those things of like, okay, he makes this dramatic narrative jump far into the future. And I was like, oh, holy shit, this is going to be great. Because I thought, um, <laughs> spoilers, mistakenly, that that he was going to basically take whatever alternative um, world stuff that he had like up his sleeve, you know, and basically craft an entire futuristic world for the characters to run around in. And so it struck me as this ridiculously awesome and generous um, upping of the ante. And uh, I think unfortunately for, for, for me, uh, I ended up being a little disappointed uh, by the next couple of issues where essentially um, the ante is not upped enough. Yeah, I don't think. Well, cer- certainly in issue thirteen, there is, it's kind of uh, the existential malaise issue. And although there's ways in which it is, parts of it are very, very funny. Um, at the same time, I found myself being kind of like, "Oh, it it didn't kick up to a higher gear. It just kind of did a bit of a fake out." Not terrible, but it wasn't really until there is an enormous, and I think I'm sure this is what Max is referring to, issue 14 comes roaring right back with an astonishing fight slash chase scene between two people who have demon abilities. Uh, and that is stunning. It's there, there's a huge chunk in the middle of it that is, um, like grosser than any of perhaps the grossest uh, jackass movies that I thought was perhaps one would say a little excessive. Um, and then fifteen. But is, is Demon not a relatively excessive comic? Oh, completely. Uh, am, I, am I alone in thinking? No, no, no. Absolutely. In fact, many people are. And believe me, I enjoyed it for its previous excesses. But um, you know. When you've got a fight scene where characters are basically able to get the upper advantage by farting semen on one another, it's like, uh, this... I think you'll find that's actually from the most recent issue of Lobo. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that you would go Superman, Wonder Woman, but, you know, that's that's fair, too. Um yeah, I, I, you know, it really is 14 and 15 then sort of like really, really pick up the, the mojo. I'll be curious to see kind of where it goes and, and, um, it's, it is a fucking amazing read. And I have gone on to recommend it to other people who basically wrote me back and were like, you bastard, I wasted, like, I had things I was supposed to do for the last two days instead of reading. Uh, this book and it, it it's great it really is great but interestingly enough i think for me um right up to issue 12 was where i was starstruck i understand i think there are people who are reading 13 14 and 15 and are like but jeff he's having crazy sex with camels 
oh my God, that amazing, you know, scene where two people are basically tumbling and smashing from building through building to building, you know, um, and coming back in new bodies and immediately jumping on top of each other and trying to gouge each other's eyes out. I mean, it really is. It's it that that alone is pretty much if you ever wanted to see the world's most insane, I don't know, Highlander fight. It's uh, but. So there, there you go, Max. Um, <laughs> part of the reason why I hadn't talked about it was in a way, part of me was like, I was like, ah, I'm not so into it. And then after you yeah. asked your question, I went and reread the issues and I went, you know, there's something wrong with me because this is actually pretty amazing. I just, it just kind of didn't quite seize my heart in the right way. But I think, I think many other people are going to be like Max, pretty astonished by just how out there and 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 how much Jason really goes for it in a way that's that's truly um pretty awesome even if it doesn't necessarily uh uh, uh pound my chicken moving on <laughs> I, there's no way you can go after kung pao your chicken come on that's right kevin moreau asks one what other podcasts, comic related or otherwise, do either slash both of you listen to or recommend? Aside from Rachel and Miles and Into It, although please feel free to plug those as well. Graham, go. Uh, I will plug Rachel and Miles and Into It. Uh, House Astonish. Yes. Uh, Silence. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of all the comic ones. I should have my phone with me and then I could just look at those. Right, just um, Oh, God. Uh, I should mention I, comic I, books are burning in hell. Maybe not necessarily. Yes, no, no, but you yeah. should because mm-hmm. that's that's yeah, actually yeah. a great podcast. Even though, like, it is it is the comic book podcast where more often than not, I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious to me. Um, I'm trying to think of okay, what non comic book releases podcasts do I listen to? Uh, the Nerdist Writers podcast. I'm fairly sure I've talked about that a bunch mm-hmm. on here. Although they do have a bunch of comic writers on it now. Mm. Um, what am I listening to? Slate's political po- uh, gabfest. I listen to every week. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to the Guardian's political podcast because I'm I'm terrible like that. Uh, awful person. I've, I've been listening to Five Thirty Eight's What's the Point a lot lately, hmm. which is literally like an explainer, like half an hour explaining one of their stories and taking them apart. Wow. Which is has been very curious. Uh, there used to be a and there may still be but I've stopped listening to it. There used to be a podcast called Working that was a slate pod- podcast that I adored mm-hmm. which was half an hour of someone just talking about a day in the life of their job mm. which was just fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a day in the life of, you know, a GP mm-hmm. which I, you know, I don't think about what time do they get up? What do they do with their day? Right. That, that It was great like input in someone else's life. Uh, I was a big fan of Serial as Jeff knows when, when it was run. Um, yeah, there's lots more that I totally can't think about because I do have my phone in front of me. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, you don't listen to us. I do not. I, I will mention that pretty much like, and I wish that I listened more because there's the Riviera. What's that? Yes. I was so glad Travis. you were going to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In case people yeah, miss that. Great. Travis Pickle on the Riviera by uh, our buddies, uh, Sean Witzke and Tucker Stone. It's about movies. It is also amazing. Ton of amazing guests, tons of amazing discussions. And we ourselves have popped up. Yep. What if it was, was a smart and be about movies? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, does that make sense? Cause, Mm -hmm. cause I, I, cause both of them are 
like uh, humiliating for me to listen to because they're so smart about what they're talking about. <laughs> but they're they're into such varied shit. Mm-hmm. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's that's that's yeah, that's a great podcast. Yeah, yeah, that absolutely is amazing. Um, question two: What are your go-to sites, publications for comic news, insight, etc., other than your own website and Graham's various employers? None of them. Burn them all to hell. That's right. Uh, we've been chastised by various people for uh, mentioning Bleeding Cool nearly as much as we do, uh, which is crazy to me because I actually think that um, Bleeding Cool, even as – I feel that it's one of the few places that still sort of manages to provide um, – a modicum of comics news that seems like genuine news. Like they still have their problems with a lot of like, Hey, we've got to fill some space. So here's somebody talking about their Kickstarter. But there's also times <laughs> where even in the midst of their I... own bias, um, you know, the, the, the Marvel news, for example, that came out here. Um, I, I feel, I just don't feel it would have been, even with the agenda that it's being pushed, I, I don't feel like it would have been discussed in nearly the same amount or the same detail on other comics news sites. And, and along similar lines, I actually think that outhousers write about a lot of stuff that other people just don't. Mm-hmm. And even more than Bleeding Cool, there was yeah. an agenda with the outhousers. That's right. But they're still talking about shit that no, uh, no one else is talking about. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. It's funny that you're talking about bias with Bleeding Cool because actually, for all that I will normally defend Bleeding Cool, mm-hmm. I have been getting tripped the fuck up on the biases there recently. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I've been reading stuff made like I like. You've clearly been fed that story. You've yes. clearly not fact checked it. Yeah. Like if you did a second of fact checking, you'll see that that's not true. Mm. Do you have an example you can actually talk out loud about or? Uh, his, he did a, I talked to a DC bean counter about the sales of their graphic novels and why DC's in trouble. And like the facts, literally the facts were wrong. That stuff sounded made up to me. I really was like, I was like, it was, Mm -hmm. it was wacky as shit. Like if you literally just looked up the sales charts, Mm -hmm. you're like, this is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the sales velocity for Watchmen has actually been increasing over the last two years. Right. Right, right. Which yeah, is that it's restored. Like that. That saying. whole statement seemed wrong and flat, and and it really had that weird thing of like, uh <laughs> like yeah, Rich, was, I've got bad news thing. for you. Like, it, yeah, it, it was clearly false. Mm-hmm. Like clearly untrue. If nothing else, if someone actually works for DC and they are actually an accountant there, they're not going to reference ICV two numbers for the sales of anything. <laughs> No, because those are estimates. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely, you know absolutely. Like, they will not yeah. give an actual figure from ICV2 because they will know that's an estimate. Yeah. It was the weirdest story. And it was in the middle of Rich doing a lot of, like, I've been hearing from DC that everything shits. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, all of all of those stories mm-hmm. seemed, seemed to come from someone or someone's with a very particular aim. Well, in, much like... Yes. His current Marvel Studios reporting. Yes. It's clearly coming from someone who has a very particular focus. Yeah. 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 I found it amazing where I was like, well, I've seen a, I've seen a lot of amazing things happen on, on comics news sites, but watching someone try and rally support for Ike Pormuter 
is like that that takes it's particularly watching rich try and do it yeah yeah absolutely um, um so yeah, yeah. There, there's it's it's very odd I, mm-hmm. I don't know if he doesn't care or he's like rich is just getting played to that level that he's not aware that he is like running stuff that is demonst- easily demonstratively false yeah I, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah like, yeah. there's stuff where you do rumors and you can't say one way or the other. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, I've heard that, you know, sales are bad and DC are pulling back on bad girling. You can't prove it one way or another, do you know? But saying, I am talking to someone who's going to give specific sales figures and talk about this. Right. You can, you can actually do your own research and be like, that's not true though. <laughs> like, that, that's actually not true. Just judging by your own source for those sales figures, that is incorrect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of ugsome. Uh, I should say that there aren't a lot of other comic sites. I should follow Outhousers more. I do follow Comics Beat a lot. We also support them via Patreon um, because I think Steve Morris does some tremendous work there. Uh, and usually, for a long time, they were the dudes who actually would do the hardcore um, breakdown of an sales chart analysis in a way that I finally sort of got and made sense. I mean, honestly, I really do think that, you know, both Paul O'Brien and Mark Olivier Frisch uh, deserved like some kind of medal for that. Cause that was a, both of them did extraordinarily long runs of, um, of, of number crunching and context that I thought really helped me feel like I knew what the fuck was going on. Um, and in both cases, uh, have been followed up by people who aren't as good. Yeah, sadly. Let, I think, let, I think let's just right. be honest. It's, yeah. They're not. It's kind of a shame. Yeah. Um, I read, like, I read all the sites mm-hmm. at this point because it's kind of my job. Right. But, um, like, I check in on CBR, I check in Newsarama, I check in on Comics Alliance, Comic Beats. Um, you know, I will probably hit, oh, comicbook.com. Oh, interesting. Uh, uh, they, they're getting, a lot of, I was going to say, they're getting a lot of exclusives. And then it was like, well, of course they are because it's run by someone who used to work for Marvel PR. But, oh, right. Yeah, you mentioned it's, it's a good, like, it's a, it's a good site. It's, you know, at least as good as CBR or Newsarama. Right. That's pretty um, impressive. I, for a site that kind of was nowhere a year ago, mm-hmm. it's, it's really impressive. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll check out comicbookmovie.com, which is, the most hilarious uh, website, but every now and again we'll actually manage to find a story that no one else has. Hmm. Uh, but also, should be checked out. That's not true. I was going to say, if you check it out as often as I do, mm-hmm. uh, you will because there's no. It's like run like a wiki, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not. There, there's no editor. So wow. every now and again, you get someone just running an opinion piece as if it's fact, and it's the most like hilariously terribly written thing in the world. And so, like, you you look and you're like, is that, like, that can't be real. Because the headline will be something like, you know, Captain America probably has AIDS. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and then, like, a story will literally be like, well, they made him black, so why don't they give him AIDS? And you're like, oh, wow, this is not the answer. Like, some dude would just randomly run shit. Um, wow. But every now and again, they actually do have stories or you know, links to things that are interesting that no one else has picked up on yet. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, all the, all the regular stuff, but really people just keep it. Wait, what? That's right. 
damn it, we've got some amazing content that more than 200 of you should be enjoying. Uh, question three. Wait, was I reading this? I guess I am. What are, yeah. <laughs> question three. What are Marvel's biggest problems today and what can be done to correct them? Graham. Holy shit. <laughs> what are Marvel's biggest problems I'm like, today? I do have that thing of like, shit, we're going to have to work to get to the end of all these questions at this rate. But yeah. yes. What, what are Marvel's biggest problems today? Um, they're so fucking many. Yeah. Uh, Marvel's biggest problem today as a comic publisher is that it is publishing far too many titles with far too little reason to publish them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marvel said that it was going to launch between 55 and 60 on all different Marvels, uh, Marvel titles, and I think they're going to top 60. I think it's going to be above 60 at this point. Really? Uh, which is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. But I want to say they have already announced more than 55. Mm-hmm. And we still do not have like Black Panther or the Hellcat series that's been teased. Or the Black Widow series, everyone knows is coming. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think, I think, I think Marvel is trying to flood the market, mm-hmm. and I think that with the position that Marvel has, Marvel will flood the market. Yeah. Well, um, let me put it this way, I, and okay. I could be wrong here. I sorry. Let let me cut you off because I do think I've this is this has been something that it, my particular hobby horse in this. Um, is I'm quite convinced that Marvel, the one of the biggest problems with Marvel is that they are given uh, sales numbers, sales figures, and money amounts that they have to hit every quarter or you know at least every you know once or twice every year, and the need they will do whatever it takes to hit those numbers. And I do think that that is, um, that has caused ridiculous amounts of problems for them for, in terms of flooding the market with too many number ones, in terms of too many event comics, anything that they can do that is more or less, uh, they continue to sort of defibrillate, you know, um, stagnant sales in order to hit their next higher, um, benchmark. Mm-hmm. And they would, they will stop at nothing to hit it because God help them if they don't. And I think that that is, it's amazing. It says something I think really about how resilient and strong the marketplace has been up until now that they have not broken, uh, the direct market because in other, in other eras and other contexts, I believe they would have already done so by now. Actually, here's another really serious problem for Marvel, even though Marvel won't consider it a problem. Mm-hmm. The market is far too kind to Marvel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The market is is far too good to Marvel. Yeah. Um, I was thinking the other day about DC's just disastrous performance over the last few months with DCU, mm-hmm. uh, and about the res- the reader response. Mm-hmm. And I think that DC punished for not being an ideal publisher mm-hmm. uh, by by everyone, but especially by retailers. Uh, and I think that Marvel gets the very opposite, mm-hmm. which is retailers will forgive Marvel anything. Yeah. Well, I think because there is a lot to be said for sell-through, you know? I mean, uh, there there are guys there. I mean, there's somebody, you and I have talked a little bit about Hibbs's recent turning to the dark side and, and, and being... <laughs> Sort of a, a 
much bigger I, I don't Marvel think booster. That way, but that's hilarious. Yeah, it, it's it's been really strange for me to see Brian Hibbs, the man who once sued Marvel Comics. That's right. Uh, show up in was it a beat message thread yeah. and basically be like. Yeah, DC's fucked up, but have you seen how Secret Wars is performing? Which was the weirdest, like, my brain almost exploded from yeah. cognitive dissonance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so my thing is, is, and I could be wrong, is I think that uh, one of the things I remember, for, for you know, for example, when Brian got in an argument, again, maybe in a comic speed thread, with, like, the guy who was one of Marvel's, like, head of direct sales do you remember that one guy who ended up jumping losing his job like not long after um where he was talking about like oh we're you know you're just looking at sales we're talking about return on investment and blah 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 and he was saying hibbs actually said and this is something that that he has said i think even before his current turn is he's like look marvel characters are more popular than dc characters in my area, there is no reason why Marvel cannot be selling two to three times what DC sells based on the popularity of the characters. Now, so he said he said that before. So I think that there is that idea. I think there's a lot I, from what I can tell, and it could be very wrong. DC is great, has tremendously been fantastic about getting in early, that there's a lot of people who, thanks to the strength of um, a very long, strong streak of uh, Warner Brothers and DC animation, there's a lot of people who get into DC characters very early on. I'm always amazed when I talk to people who know, you know, like... Even before they see their Christopher Nolan Batman movie, they know about that character based on some series or other. And that happened a lot. Sure. It, it amazing the number of people who had strong feelings about like characters like The Question or Aquaman based on stuff like Brave and the Bold or Justice League Unlimited. And, and, and usually there's that, that's popping up in like the, 12 and under crowd, many cases they ate an under crowd. And what I find amazing is, is that it seems like there's, it's, it's never quite transit. They never quite transition well into DC readers the same way that Marvel has been managed to, I mean, the number of people that still have incredible, you know, whose first attachment to the X-Men was via cartoon series that has been off the air a tremendous period of time now you know, mm -hmm. is kind of, there's sort of a weird, like they were able to make that transition, maybe probably via the movies and then to the comics or however it ended up happening for them. Um, I don't know. So yeah, I, I feel that people are, like you said, people are far too generous to Marvel. I mean, that has always been a lot of problems in the comics direct market because a lot of the retailers long before now, cut Marvel way, way, way too much slack. Um, and DC was the I, I, classic, you know, the per, the one that, that no one really wanted to seem to take to the prom. It, yeah, it is the strange thing where, like, DC was... Uh, DC was Betty in this. Mm -hmm. uh, and Marvel was Veronica. And the retailers really wanted Veronica. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that now DC has started dressing like Veronica to extend my metaphor far too long. 
people are really upset about it. I, I, I think there's this very strange thing where like DC starts acting like Marvel in terms of how it treats retailers. Mm-hmm. And people are like, I can't believe they're doing this. Well, this is appalling. Why not certain business practices this? Which is hilarious because right. you could understand why DC would do it because they're like, well, look at these guys. These guys are far more popular than us and they're treating them like shit. Maybe we can treat them like shit as well. Well, but in yeah. doing so, it's like the one competitive practice that they had. Yes, right. And and I think that is the thing that is problematic is, is that DC can't do basically DC can't just spend 20 years complaining about how it always ends up in the friend zone and then decides that the secret to making sure that it's no longer treated that way is suddenly to like, you know, wear a fedora, get a cockatiel and start negging retailers. You know, it's just, (laughs) it's just, that's is the greatest explanation (laughs) listeners of what is currently going on in uh, comic book publisher slash retailer relationships. So I, I, I do uh, think... Wait, yeah. why is 3A? Yes. Because I, I, I really am leaving it at that, because that was great. Um, are Secret Wars slash all new, all different Marvel and the continuing push to make Inhumans happen signs of creative bankruptcy? I love how into creative bankruptcy everybody is. <laughs> I love you, listeners. I love um, you so I, much. I, I'm not to say it's creative bankruptcy as much as... Uh, Fiscal bankruptcy? I, I, <laughs> uh, no, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying, like, hibernation. Creative hibernation. Mm, mm-hmm. I, I think that Marvel is not doing anything... I mean, it's doing interesting books. There are individual books that are that are... Yeah. Yeah, they're great. They're really is. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but you know, you look at something like Secret Wars. Now nine issues long, true believers. <laughs> um, uh, and and all new, different Marvel, which is I think everyone has pointed out now, neither new nor different, right? Uh, or in humans, which is just. Amazing yeah. that Marvel is definitely trying to make Inhumans happen. Yeah. Um, and, and there is, I don't know if it's creative bankruptcy as much as editorial bankruptcy. It's, 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 it's there is a certain amount of overhanded, uh, heavy handed top down management, you know? And I, and honestly, I think Marvel does a remarkably good job. I mean, if stories are to be believed, if the idea that Spider-Gwen really, the, that comic exists because Ike Perlmutter, like, said, we've got to have a Spider-Gwen comic, like, if that really is true and I have all sorts of reasons why I'm dubious about it, I really have to hand it to the people at Marvel who made that work because technically that should be way, way, way more terrible than it, than it actually is. And Marvel has done a remarkably good job, I think, in terms of being able to take talent, take mandates and turn them into something that's remotely interesting. Unfortunately, uh, I, I think that, like I said, as long as there's still those benchmarks, Marvel's continuing need to hit those benchmarks means that what we see are um, weird filigrees of of interestingness, um, but basically a real strong, you know, shambling leviathan of sameness because they have to ensure that their sales hit this level, you know? I, I believe shambling leviathan of, of 
sameness was actually how Jonathan Eggman pitched Secret Wars. <laughs> I'm hoping I, that is the title of the ninth issue. That would actually do my heart like so. It would ah, like ah. Uh, blah. Number Question four. four. I know I've read Wait What Mascot Patron St. Steve Englehart comics over the years, but what would you point to as his most important slash must-read work, or where should someone start in order to gain a greater appreciation? Oof, what a what a heartbreaking question. Millennium. <laughs> let's let's pretend Graham didn't say that. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm quasi serious because I think if you get Millennium, then you're good. And I think it's it's a vision of Scarlet Witch series is the same. I think if you enjoy that, then you're good. And if you don't, then maybe Engelhart isn't for you. Huh. You know, well, I I, I guess I, I will. Mean, you're s- what his what his what? best work is is probably either Avengers or West Coast Avengers. Right. I mean. Uh, well, or I'm I'm incredibly fond of his Captain America stuff. It it ends up actually kind of being truncated and ending in flames, which happens to a lot of his runs, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Kevin, I don't. It's it's tough because there's there's two huge asterisks. One is is that um, you have to me, it's like you have to be able to read. 70s Marvelese, you know, it's, it's, it can, I think it's, it makes sense to me. It's hard for people. It's surprisingly hard for me now. The comics that we read now are, are relatively streamlined. Um, and if you go back and read the stuff from, you know, everything sort of inspired by Stanley's Marvel on, a lot of that stuff looks crazily overwritten and, and written with ridiculous amounts of purple prose, an extraordinarily distracting narrator that will not shut up, um, shut up, shoot up. Uh, the, but that being said, if you, so that hurdle I think is hard. I've had trouble, you know, recommending stuff by Steve Gerber, who I think is fantastic because people read it and they're just like, ugh. All that said. Oh, that's interesting. I, I think Gerber is much harder to get into today than Engelhart. That's interesting. It definitely seems to be the case with a lot of people, but I always assumed that was just because Gerber is <laughs> his. It you know, Engelhart stuff. I think at the very most of it tends to work on at least one level, which is sort of a rip roaring superhero yarn. Um, and I think that Gerber's stuff doesn't qu- always work at that level. And there's an additional level of weirdness that you uh, of of not especially subtle weirdness that one has he, he's, he's a very gerber is a very uh idiosyncratic writer who yeah. on almost every occasion his personal voice shines through and if you're not ready for essentially younger stoner kurt vonnegut writing comics right. then you're kind of screwed whereas well, engelhart yeah. will make it a straightforward normally amazingly convoluted superhero story but you know, mm-hmm. it's a superhero story. Yeah. You know, you're, it's not like Gerber where he's, where he's clearly, you know, I'm going to use the beast to talk about my own, you know, deep seated feelings about my father. Right. Um, Engelhardt's much more straightforward. I, the more I think about it, the more I think West Coast Avengers might actually be the gateway, uh, to Engelhardt. It was definitely my gateway to Engelhardt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and does work on the dual level of, you want to read a fun superhero comic that's relatively mm-hmm. self-contained? Right. It's here. You want to get into the weirdness that is always present in Engelhart's material. It's also here. Yeah. But you can, you can bypass it. And also West Coast Avengers features the lost in space time arc mm-hmm. where 
I think is the zenith of his twisty turny. I'm going to connect all of continuity together in such a way that it seems light and fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, true. So yeah, yeah, I'm going to say West Coast Avengers. Hmm, interesting. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of places. I adored this Captain America, like I said, and that is a huge, uh, you know, I feel that it's a, a, a tremendous template on what Ed Brubaker goes on to do with Captain America and therefore reshapes a much. lot of that. So, I mean, that's huge. His Avengers stuff is huge. But it's kind of that weird, like, if you look, he does all sorts of contributions all over the place. Um, I think his Batman work with Marshall Rogers is, is pretty great. I, he does at the same time, around the same time he's doing West Coast Avengers, he's got a surprisingly long run on Green Lantern that focuses that book that, it, <laughs> you know, what, you don't think so? I'm, no, I'm laughing because, uh, like I said before, I was talking to Adam Nave about uh, New Guardians, and we were also talking about Green, his Green Lantern run, right. which I love, and again, is one of my first Englehart runs, mm-hmm. but it's almost like the prism of everything that's problematic about Green Lantern is in that run. Oh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Because it, cause it is the... There are... Basically, I feel that before that, because, you know, uh, Englehart comes in following a run by Len Wein and Dave Gibbons, which because it's Dave Gibbons, it's like, holy shit, it looks amazing. And also has this feeling of, it feels like it should be more, like you get the sense that Len Wein is like, okay, I really want to take this character kind of seriously and the mythos seriously. Not that other people weren't, but they were kind of... Green Lantern up to that point went through a long stretch where it was kind of like the book that everyone did an issue or two of knowing they were only going to do an issue or two of it. Um, and when Englehart comes in, he manages to take, I, I feel everything. I think with Green Lantern, the, 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 the Hal Jordan incarnation of Green Lantern and, and how the mythos developed, that mythos for the Green Lantern core. Englehart takes every everything in it that's great is also it its greatest strength is always its greatest weakness, I feel. And one of the things that is amazing to me about Englehart's Green Lantern is he takes a couple of things that people had toyed with you know, oh my god, what if Hal Jordan quits being a Green Lantern and we give it to another Green Lantern and he takes that, he takes a lot of the mythos as it existed and starts, um, you know, m- tiling it all together and making it, it really was an exhilarating read at the time, you know? And I feel that in a way, it's also f- more fun and more light than what you end up seeing, you know, when Jeff Johns essentially does his variation of the same thing of taking all the stuff that's, you know, accrued since then and try and build it into a greater whole. Um, so anyway, Englehart, I think, I think, uh, apart from Skull the Slayer 4 and a couple of other books, there, there, <laughs> there are a few wrong steps to take. So, um, at least in the superhero stuff, I never got into Coyote. And let's see, five, would you ever consider a Wait What Facebook group as a place for fans of the show to gather together and talk comics and related interest? What a great way to load a question. Graham, do you want to kick that particular puppy? Go ahead. Sure. 
yes, we might consider it, but we're unlikely to do it, seeing as Jeff and I aren't really on Facebook that much. Yeah, so I, I think it would be I think it would be hard. It, it's something that uh, let's put it this way: Graham and I have an upcoming Wait What Creative Summit um, uh, 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 soon. Uh, we will discuss it in the course of discussing the other things that we're uh, going to be talking about. So. Creative summit. That's what we're, we're both flying out to New York, and we're going to meet with the Weight Watch editor. That's right, and talk talk about how to depower Weight Watch, <laughs> and also maybe take away that secret identity for a bit. You know, really get that back to the core of the character. Yeah, basically, there's a lot of things, and also there's going to be us taking lots of photos of us eating sandwiches around a table. As far as I can tell, that seems to be the biggest <laughs> oh point God. of yeah. a creative we summit. Really should do that. Yeah, yeah, that actually <laughs> would be, be great. Completely. Um, Jeff. Yes. Before we go on, uh, you're breaking up terribly for me right now. Oh, really? Oh, okay. You sound good, but that's, that is, uh, let me figure out, you know what I've got to do? I've got to stop this. I bet I know what it is. Um, let me do this. Okay. Uh, let's give it a few minutes. If it's still bad, let me know. And then. No, you, you immediately sounded better. Okay. Then I, then I totally know what it is. What a pain in the ass. Okay. What were you- uh, this is through basically my camera is trying to upload 2000 photos into Dropbox. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, so you, you literally sound a million times better already. Yeah. Okay. So that's what it was. It was totally clogging the bandwidth. Yeah. Do you want okay. to read uh, Paul's question? I will. Paul Lai. Hopefully I'm pronouncing your name right. Paul. Paul Lai. Says, Lai could be. Yeah. Seems we've thrown up our hands after golden, silver, bronze, and the unfortunately named modern ages. Should we take for granted that comics are so diverse, diffuse, and mainstream now that ma- marking eras like that will be impossible slash irrelevant? Or what about calling it a spectrum age, where all that really can be taken for granted is the diversity? Paul, I have to apologize. I will put. I need to email you because you had a. Uh, you wrote an article about this on multiversity and for whatever reason I could not access it to read it beforehand. So Paul takes this idea and and sort of spins it out and I have to say it sounds relatively interesting. I feel he's got a stronger take on it than I did upon reading the question because I'm sort of like uh, you know golden silver and bronze ages I I sort of dig those as as marketing, you know, as basically categories to be able to help to distinguish comic books when you're talking about them, usually from the aspect of selling them, you know? Um, well, it's not just that. For me, I think mm-hmm. that those – I feel those were all names with the exception of the modern age uh, in when they were done, when it, uh, retrospectively. And I think that right. labeling, any, labeling like, now we're in the blah blah age, right. is is a fool's errand. I, th- I think that you don't know what it's going to be until it's done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because you're, you're in the middle of it. Yeah. And so the idea that, you know, all, all that really can be taken for granted is the diversity. Sure, but mm-hmm. but also not because there's always been a diverse amount of material available. It's just it might not have been available in the way that you recognize it being available. That's right. So you know, in the 1970s and 80s, 
were comics really that more much more limited, especially when you think about like Larry Gonick doing the cartoon history of the universe, right? Or Raw, you know, like, or the Raw, or mm-hmm. like uh, even Gary Larson doing the Far Side, you know, Calvin and Hobbes being done. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's always stuff that will contradict the known history, and I think that it's uh, I think that when you're in the middle of an era or 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 anything, when you're in the middle of a period, um, you either go towards, this is the best it's ever been, or this is the worst it's ever been. Right. And I think it's it's uh, difficult to really get a good idea of what is actually happening until it's over. Well, that so, be- being uh, said, I agree with you, Graham, but part of me is like, the other thing that's tough, and again, why I feel like it's kind of a little bit of a marketing thing, uh, is for me, I feel like it would be perfectly apropos to call the 90s the Dark Age. You know what I mean? Just in the sense of it was because we had the collapse of the marketplace, but also the way the material was treated as quote-unquote grim and gritty, and the way we emerged at the end of it was sort of a different hand of comics. But I don't think anyone's ever going to call it, you know, the Dark Age. You know, because I think that it's a very uncomfortable, sure, weird but- thing to say about comics. <laughs> but but that's also Jeff because there are people who have the very different experience than we do. That is that is true. You know, so think about think about people who are twenty years younger than us and for who the nineties was when they got into comics. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like one of the things I'm I'm continually fascinated now is you see more and more people writing about comics who are like, I watched X Men the animated series and then I picked up, you know, X Force and Shatterstar is the greatest hero, and they're being entirely genuine. Oh yeah, completely, completely. You know? yeah. Whereas for me, I'm like Shatterstar. <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, actually yes. liked the Executioner song, right? Um, right. and for those people, you know, they're going to be like, oh, you know, why, why are you calling it the Dark Age? Because Generation X was such a light book, and you had Peter David's doing the Hulk, and right. you know, their experience is so very different. That's a great point. Yeah. It's true. Uh, and so, I, ultimately, I, I, and I've always felt this, and I, the older I get, the more I feel it. Mm-hmm. I think once you get beyond the Golden Age and the Silver Age, it's time to just like throw your hands up and be like, woof! <laughs> right. Right. It, it, that, that is probably a good point. Because I feel Golden and Silver Ages are relatively easy to talk about. And then after that, it gets, it, it does, the, the waters get incredibly murky. So, I don't know, uh, that, but that is a great point. Um, Paul, hopefully, like I said, I'll be able to get to your uh, site and be able to link it. And John Kim asks, there are a lot of resets to the status quo in comics, Spider-Man, Batman, after said comics, try something different. Are the reasons for the resets mainly fan backlash and low sales? And uh, I think Maybe. I'll read the... Sure. Do you yeah. want to sneak in the next bar as well? Yeah, here I am trying to sneak in another question. Are there any good legacy characters in comics? Wally West was the best legacy character. See, in I was going to say, I there were. I don't know if they're actually good legacy characters in comics right now, still, but but you know because they get. But right, for a while, right like now. Wally West was was it? Wally West was great. Yeah, Wally West was great. I'll even say that I personally think that the the Carl. Kyle Rayner Green Lantern was particularly after I developed such a fondness for that character under um, Grant Morrison's handling in JLA 
mm-hmm. that I was kind of like that character had a l- kind of a lot of potential. I don't think Ron yeah, exactly. Mars was that right person. had his own comic. Yeah, exactly. You know, so but uh, but so, no, yeah. I, I think the Wally West really was. Um, you know, you can look at the historical thing. He was the first uh, sidekick who actually took the place of his mentor. Yes. Seriously, and for an extended period, like 25 years, he was yeah, in charge. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but also, he arguably eclipsed his character in, mm-hmm. in all the ways that counts. He was a more interesting character. Yeah. He had more going for him. He had a more interesting supporting cast. He had more of a reason, a motivation to be the Flash. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, so, yeah, I think Wally, Wally is, is the thing to, to aim for. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Wally was fabulous. Um, I, you know, and okay, uh, are the reasons for recess mainly fan backlash and no sales? No, I think that uh, a lot of it is also creators want to play with the versions of the characters they grew up with. Well, or alternately, they want to be able to take a new spin on the character that they yeah. can't anymore. You know, I mean, yeah. and there's something. True, to be, I mean, yeah. Sorry. I was going to say, I'm really enjoying Superman right now, the, mm-hmm. the, the DCU version, but it's obviously temporary mm-hmm. because there's no way on earth that a future creative team isn't going to want to go, oh, and there are the dogs. Wow. Uh, there's no way a future creative team isn't going to want to just go, I want Superman with the cape again. Right. Right. You know, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, and it's not, it's not a surprise that one of the first things that, well, first, after a year, one of, you know, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo took Batman and they're like, oh, okay, now we're going to go back and we're going to do our year zero, you know? And because the early, the early days of Batman are really interesting. Having Superman be a character that, you know, has a lot of variability and surprise and a certain amount of vulnerability. Those things are great. It just, and after a certain point, what happens is I feel like the scale, everything powers up so quickly that at a certain point, it feels, at least for the creators, they're like, eh, you know, I'm not so excited by being, by, by telling, you know, a, a bronze age Superman story. I want to try and tell a silver age Superman story or a golden age Superman story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Lou Smith's next question, I feel, is weirdly connected to this by complete happenstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all the aborted storylines, new directions, and false starts you guys have read in superhero comics, what was the one you really wanted to see play out? Yeah, that's a. I, I gotta admit, I was a little brain dead on that one. I was like, oh, I, I've got a super, uh, not really obscure, but like a super old one. Uh huh. I wish the firestorm is fire elemental had stuck around. Oh, interesting. Interesting. It only lasted for like two years, but I really, really enjoyed it. Hmm. Uh, for those who have no idea what I'm talking about, because I really am going back to like 1989. Right. Um, when John Strander and Tom Mandrake were the creative team of Firestorm, they came up with the theory that the reason that there had been multiple incarnations of Firestorm at that point is that Firestorm was meant to be the fire elemental, and he kept on basically getting born wrong. Mm. Which very much ran from the Alan Moore Swamp Thing idea. And so there was another rebirth, I guess, like re-origin of him, Mm -hmm. uh, in which it emerged that a character who'd been around for, again, about two years by that point, the amnesiac firestorm that had 
that had his own personality, was not merely Ronnie in charge, mm. um, was the true personality. And he, upon discovering he was the fire elemental, he took charge of that. He took responsibility. And he was essentially a different character for the last two years of the book. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which I, you know, I am massively in favor of. I thought it was a better visual for the character as well. Hmm. Hmm. Um, but disappeared. He, uh, the book cancels with issue 100. And I want to say the next time Firestorm showed up, they were like, and he's Ron Raymond again. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Interesting. What a great choice. I was actually, I mean, I've got, got a few half-assed ones up my sleeve. Uh, I originally said that part of me, part of me would be really curious to see what had happened if they continued to play out Steve Englehart's incarnation of the Fantastic Four. And which is, uh, Ben and Ms. Marvel, Ms. Marvel being Sharon, the female thing, mm-hmm. uh, and Crystal and Johnny, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I, I would have been kind of curious to see where, uh, Englehart was going to go with that. Cause I think, uh, he, he's talked about basically having, having that, uh, series shot out from underneath him. And I think that's, I think that's kind of a shame. Uh, I think he had, that also happened with West Coast Avengers for him as well. Isn't that right? Weren't you telling yeah, me Yeah, it was, it was, I want to say it was roughly the same time as well. Yeah, that's that right. Essentially gets, gets taken off of both books. Yeah. Um, he was going somewhere very interesting with West Coast Avengers, and it, it is a shame to, that we never got to see where that was. Mm-hmm. But his, his last issues of West Coast Avengers, he essentially splits the, he essentially splits the team in two, mm-hmm. um, along ideological lines about whether or not Avengers should kill. So he's basically doing a proto Civil War thing, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, interesting. Uh, because of the way that you know Marvel editorial worked, that was pretty much like. More or less, um, pushed onto the rug. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. There, there, there was definitely his stuff tended not to be cleaned up very elegantly by by the people who followed. Um, so yeah, Steve Englehart's work. I have to say, of course, for me, there's there's an there's an alternate world where Spider-Man comics are about a married couple. Um, you know, in which the husband actually fights crime as Spider-Man. You know, Wait, I, I think you'll find that that's called Spider-Man Renew Your Vows, and it's available right now in your comic stores, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, that is definitely a waiting for Marvel Unlimited one for me, because I'm sort of like, it's because I'm just like, that's not the same, Graham. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you can you can bring it back now and be like, oh hey, look what we've been doing, and that's something very different from what would have been. God, like how long has it been now? Like five or six years of... Oh, I um, want to say it's more, more than that, wasn't I, it? I feel like it's got to be more than that. Seven years? Yeah, something like that. Seven years of extremely fast publication, too. So lots and lots of comics. And frankly, they did a great job with it. They really... there's they, But part of me is also kind of... 2007. Wow. <whistles> 2007. God damn, time flies. Um, so yeah, uh, but Ed, that's yeah. that's interesting to me because did you uh, did you think that Spider Man and Mary Jane being married added that much to the, the series? You know, I I can't necessarily say that it did. Although I do feel that one of the strengths of 
J. Michael Straczynski stuff, which I know there's a lot of people who are kind of like, you know, that series right up until John Romita Jr. leaves. Yeah, exactly. Is, yeah. You it's know, pretty good, and then John Romita Jr. leaves and it all goes to shit really quickly. It's the point where you're like, wow, was John Romita Jr. actually writing the book? Yeah, exactly. But it's clear that he wasn't, but he meant, you know, but it worked. It did work. And frankly, there was stuff with them with, with Peter and Mary Jane where it was, it was so much closer to being, being a book that made sense. I don't, how do I feel? I, I'm very torn on the feelings of Spider-Man because on the one hand, part of me is like, yeah, there's some, been some really pretty decent Spider-Man stories since, some really gorgeous stuff. But there's also kind of that idea of, when Spider-Man was really created in those first, you know, you look at the first year of Spider-Man, they didn't think they were going to be around forever, but there was that idea of like, okay, so we're going to actually have a character that, that grows up. And, you know, again, a little bit like what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast, there is part of me that would love to see to have that continue to happen. And for a long time when I was growing up, Spider-Man was the book where that happened, you know, it's like I jumped in, Gwen Stacy died that, you know, Peter Parker's in a mess for something like two whole years while he and Mary Jane Watson sort of slowly come together in a way that just really felt pretty amazing to me in some ways goes right on up to him graduating college and then admittedly enters various periods of strengths and weaknesses and free falls. And then, you know, by the time you get to the clone saga, like the whole idea of progress and how to handle progress in Spider-Man becomes helplessly screwed up. You know, there, um, I was reading this thing about head cannon uh, mm, on CBR mm -hmm. this week. And I don't really hold with head cannon mm -hmm. um, because I, there's just something about me as a reader. Where I'm like, well, if it's on the page, I guess it happened. Do you know what right. I mean? Like, I, I find it very difficult to be like, well, that story never happened. Right. But I have, there are a number of series where I'm like, you have a, like a great run and then the run ends. Mm -hmm. And for me, Amazing Spider-Man is a really solid title. Mm -hmm. Pretty much all the way up to like 300. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then 300 really is like the kind of fall off point for me. Mm -hmm. That then it's, it sort of loses its way to an increasing degree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. for another, I mean, when did it go on to for the clone saga? I mean, I want to say the clone saga isn't even for another like hundred issues almost. Yeah. It seems like it's um, but, actually but it's, several it's, years it's past that. A slow mm -hmm. downward trend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we kind of did this with Avengers as well. When we did the Avengers reads, I think Avengers through 300 is really solid. And then it gets, gets off the rails. Fantastic Four is different in that Fantastic Four actually gets derailed pretty much as soon as Kirby leaves mm -hmm. because because the main creative force of the book is gone mm -hmm. and they haven't worked out how to do it again and so you get a number of like stuttering it's kind of good oh 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 on Fantastic Four as soon as Kirby leaves all the way up to the, the book finishing. Like, it, it's it's an incredible uneven thing. I think the Spider-Man is great for, like, 300 issues. Mm -hmm. Just, like, solidly feels like one narrative, even mm -hmm. though multiple people are ha handling it. Uh, but it does. You have the progress, and then the progress ends. Yeah. 
And then what happens after that point? I mean, it really is. It's one of those, it's one of the areas that becomes sort of problematic is, is that a lot of these characters are not intended to last forever. And one of the things that really made Marvel great was when they started turning those things around, you really do not get the sense that they feel like they're crafting something knowing that it's still going to be around in like 30 years. It's literally just like, what can we do this month? What can we maybe do this year? You know, with the characters, there's, they're just, they're not looking much. I mean, by the time you even get to Marvel in the seventies, they're like thinking the way they're thinking about it is like, okay, what are we going to do when superheroes are over, you know, again, you know, they're like, we got to start building up our monster line of books because surely there's the horror trend is going to come back and we've got to be ready for it because superheroes have never lasted this long. Um, you know, and then and then they went on to be proven wrong, you know, so I don't know. It It is interesting. I do feel that there is a little bit of that idea of the things that attracted me as a comic book reader really was the idea of like, oh, there's a history and everything in that history matters. And if I buy enough comics and I read all the comics, I will understand that entire history. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, unfortunately that I think that can only work for the characters for so long. And then you start getting weird mini boots, reboots, stealth reboots, People started if people come onto the book who have not read all 300, 400 issues of the title and therefore forget something or do something wrong or it's contradictory. Eh, what can you do? I've managed to get over that, but in my heart of hearts, I still sort of want to see the books where the characters continue to grow up. You get legacy characters, you get all kinds of stuff, and it becomes it becomes something different. You know, I I I am torn. On the one hand. I really do want to try and get like the next five questions done and then get done. Yes. We're so close. On the other hand, I'm just going to say this and move on really quickly. Yes. I really wish that Secret Wars had actually ended in a reboot. Yeah, I I think so too. I think I I do as well. I find myself myself thinking that it is a missed opportunity, that Marvel Mm -hmm. did not follow through and say, okay, we're actually fixing characters. Because Mm -hmm. the fact that they haven't just seems like needlessly... All of Secret Wars seems needless. All of Secret Wars seems entirely not worthless because it's a comic story. It's as you know, worthless or worthy as any other comic story. Right. But but all the hype and rigmarole uh, seems even more hyperbolic. Yeah. Than, than the usual crossover, mm-hmm. and for less of a payoff. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, all you're doing is like, and then it turns out for. Uh, what are we going to say? Eight months? Let's be polite. For eight months, we had a giant what if. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of it counted, but some of it didn't because. And you're like, oh shit, really? Like, I, I just feel that they, I wish they had gone for a reboot in the end. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, who knows where what will actually happen? But it sure it it really does seem like it's not going to. And I I do think that's a lost opportunity because part of me is like, you guys. Yeah, there's a variety of things that they need. Uh, Ed Kukorin, uh says, in a couple of previous episodes, you've mentioned the effect that the library market has on how trade paperback collections are made and marketed. Can you talk a little bit more about the economics of that? What kind of comics rely so heavily on libraries? What do libraries look for? 
Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, shit, did we talk about um, this? Oof. I, I, I'm actually going to, uh, cheat somewhat mm-hmm. and link this to another, uh, later question. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, Drew Megger also asked about libraries. Yeah, let's, let's sort of combine it. Um, also, are there any plans to collect the Avengers read through into one big mega episode? That would be amazing and hilarious. Yes, yes, there are, because I said that at, at the start of the year that I was going to try and do it for Avengers Age of Ultron. And guess what I didn't do? Wow. Uh, but yeah, there are. At some point, I'm going to do it. It might not be one episode, because that might be stupidly long. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, there may be like a mini series of, of edited together. Avengers rereads because I think this I sound like a comic publisher. I think by doing uh, Baxter Building, mm-hmm. I think there's we've maybe proven that there's an audience for it, mm-hmm. um, for people to not necessarily have to go back and listen to a year's worth of Wait Watts, yeah, to like 15 minutes of Avengers at the end, but just try and collect them into a, a special thing, yeah. Um, so yeah, there there are plans. When, who knows? But yes, there are plans. Great. And Drew Drew said, um, "It feels like every episode we hear a mention of some comic or other borrowed from your local library. That'll be me, as the librarian who buys comics for his library. I need to know what comic titles would you want to see in your ideal library." Should we focus on the critical top 10 lists, darlings, and easy entry points for new readers? Or should we go obscure and get the titles readers might have been interested in, but not $30 hardbound trade interested? Um, Drew's questions are much easier to answer. So I, I'm, going to, I'm going to cheat by starting with those. Okay. Uh, yes, is all of the, is the answer to all of Drew's stuff. <laughs> I, am, I am amazingly spoiled here. Um, yeah. The Multnomah County Library System here in Portland, Oregon is just staggeringly good mm-hmm. uh, in in every respect. It is the best library system I have ever had the pleasure to use, and I am a vehement supporter of it. Uh, but it is particularly good in terms of comics, probably because Portland's a comic town. Mm-hmm. But i I use it for I use it for the thirty upwards dollar hardbound uh, trade collections that I'm interested in, but not enough to buy. I use it for as I've been as I said on the the written post on the site this week to revisit series that I didn't really read before. I've mm-hmm. pretty much been like going through the new 52 back catalog because I can get like the entire run of Demon Knights at the library. Right. I can read all, all 18 of those issues in one sitting. I can read all of Stormwatch in one sitting. Um, and that's great. That That's wonderful having that resource there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the library is how I finally managed to get through BPRD, the Hellboy spinoff. Mm-hmm. And I loved it, but I needed the library to to make the investment so that I could make the investment in time. Right. Uh, so I think ideally a library goes beyond the top 10 list darlings mm-hmm. uh, and does go for a broader scope. Not only because people like me appreciate that, but because people who aren't like me might not even know they like comics until they see stuff that isn't the top 10 list, darling. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, yeah, I, you know, let me jump back actually to cover Ed's thing because honestly, Ed, we're not the best people to talk about it despite the fact that we tend to talk about it a lot. One of I've the- already 
Maybe Drew is because he's a librarian. Exactly. We should actually kind of – it's like one of those deals where it's like, Drew, if you totally want to answer Ed's question, I we would be so happy to actually read that on air for Ed at a, at a later episode. What I will uh, say – yes, hmm? I know. I was going to say we should try and take swings at them anyway. We, uh, the economics of the library system, uh, I know that there are definitely some publishers who I will not name beyond saying they are not the big two and they do uh, books that are not uh, superhero mainstream books. Yeah. But there are definitely a number of publishers who really rely on libraries Yeah, um, to buy a lot of uh, – what did Drew say? Critical darlings mm-hmm. um, that, that don't necessarily get picked up by the direct market, or for that matter, the bookstore market. Yeah, but will you know will get critically praised. Yeah, libraries are a big market for for uh, publishers like who am I thinking of here, Jeff? Fanographics. Uh, Fanographics for second Oni. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. And honestly, there there was a huge chunk of you know manga went through a period where it was enormous in the bookstores and kind of a quote unquote fad. Um, I think part of the reason why we still have manga available after post the fad is because of the number of uh, libraries that have bought copies of of manga from viz or even keeping old tokyo pop stuff the stuff that's coming out from vertical for example is a great example of stuff that tends to find a a, a niche a welcoming spot in libraries the number of libraries that do that you know before you would get comics publishers who would do like a 2,000 copy, you know, 4,000 copy print run because they were passionate about it. And I'm thinking of stuff like some of Fanographics, like newspaper strip reprints, like, but toward the end of their Popeye run, which was amazing, their first collection of EC Cigar Popeye stuff, I would be shocked if those, if the number of copies actually moved uh, into the four digits, you know, but once you actually have libraries in there, a couple thousand libraries suddenly makes the difference between passion project that just about kills off a publisher and a publisher that's able to then put out two or three passion projects and sure. stay afloat from years to year, you know, mm-hmm. and that's and also something enormous. Like, uh, I, I cannot believe the fans graphics, uh, Peanuts hardcovers, yeah, are not massive in libraries as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I sort of feel well. I don't know. I sort of assume they are. I think that's that's, but, that's what I mean. Like yeah. I I feel I feel like they must be. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or something like drawn and quarterly's Kate Beaton collections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel libraries are an ideal market for those. Yeah, because Kate Beaton's target audience is not going to be in the direct market. Mm-hmm. And John Quarterly, despite being a great publisher and putting out great work, doesn't really have enough of a foothold in the bookstore market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I feel that, you know, you get a gate beaten book, you know, uh, what's the new one called? Step Aside Pops, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, you get that in the, in a library. And I think it will find an audience that might then trace her back mm-hmm. to the bookstore. Yeah. And grow grow the market that way. Yeah, book bookstores are kind of the open seas. I think you know it's 
wild and woolly, but it can smash ships and throw them on the rocks. And so there's a lot of publishers who go into stuff. I mean, a, a good example is on the stuff that Pantheon was putting out uh, as a result of graphic novels getting big. Um, you know, or you would see like a lot of people who are like, yeah, we want graphic novels because these sales look amazing, but not, not every, not every graphic novel series is going to be amulet, you know, not every, um, jaded comic book, uh, creator is going to be a Dan Close or an Adrian Tomine. So they're still doing worthy work, but sometimes what happens is the market suddenly turns back to celebrity cookbooks and entire lines of promising graphic novel stuff gets completely scuppered. But, you know, libraries can be not so much the ocean as much of a bay. You know, you've got, you've got protection on the sides that allow for slightly smoother sailing and for, for smaller ships to, to, to not be crashed on the rocks and ground under. Um, and so that's, that's amazing. Now, that being said, it would be wonderful to talk about how these things get affected with Marvel and DC because, yeah, for myself, as a greedy son of a bitch, I would love it if everything that was coming out by Marvel and DC was being bought by our library system because some of those Omnibi are uh, beautiful and I would love to read them. I just don't want to pay for them. And they're yeah. actually being built sturdily enough, some of them, that they can be in the library system and survive, unlike, I don't know, some of the copies of Batman Hush that I've seen in the libraries <laughs> that, that, that are holding on to, you know, to, to dear life from being There's just something about tatters. Batman Hush that makes people want to tear apart the Jeff. They do. They're kind of like, let me do a victory dance now that I've read this issue. Uh, so, hey, um, when, when Jason Todd comes back, who doesn't want to just tear a page out of that book? Hey, that is, Jason Todd coming back. The problem is, is uh, never mind. We'll have to talk about the problems with Hush at some point. Ben, the problem Paul is Spence. not. Yes. <laughs> uh, it says, would the Whatnots offer their views on Kirby's Marvel series, The Eternals? I read The Eternals for the first time this year, courtesy of Marvel Unlimited, and it provoked a mixed response from me. Now, I, do you want me to go through his mixed response, or do you want to just tackle this? Let me let me read the paragraph that I extracted okay. for reading it as a question. The mythology appeared to be fourth world light mashed up with some of the ideas from Kirby's 2001 and a serving from Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. The fourth worlds of the new gods becomes the fourth host of the Eternals and DC's Orion becomes Icarus in the Eternals. Icarus. This does appear... To Icarus, yeah. It does appear to be a case where Kirby was recycling ideas. Um... So, you know, I got to say, Graham, The Eternals is one of those that I've had sitting around that I still haven't read all of. I kind well, of... The, yes. There's a reason for that, which is The Eternals starts off strong and then loses power as it goes on. Yeah, I think so. I think so, too. Um, that I being... think it does start off strong. I think the first, like, two or three issues are great. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and and it even does have moments. I this is this is my thing. Is is I feel that Kirby's late seventies work, and I know that there was somebody, maybe Abbe or maybe it's Tom Spurgeon. I think it was Tom Spurgeon. No, it was Abbe saying that they couldn't really look at some of Kirby's later Marvel stuff because he seemed kind of 
broken and dispirited. I just feel he was working on kind of a different mode. Like to me, Kirby in that period of the Eternals saying, because one of the things Paul says that I don't quote directly is he talks about how the book has some amazing visual moments, but overall he's not really into it as a story. I kind of feel that there's stuff with maybe the exception of some of the pieces in 2001, a space odyssey, which are amazing stories. Um, a, a lot of his stuff there, like, how do I put it? It's like, I'm like, you can't, I can't dismiss the amazing visuals. The visuals are the stuff where I'm just spellbound by the stuff that he is, he is drawing, you know? There, there are two, uh, double page spreads in the first couple of issues of the Eternals in particular mm-hmm. that are just jaw dropping. Yeah. Uh, there is the, there's like a Mayan temple. Double page mm-hmm. present first issue. And then I want to say, I think it's issue two, it might be issue three, uh, the opening double page splash where you get the scale of the Celestials. Yes. For the first time mm-hmm. is, it, ju- it gets across scale in a way that comics do not normally. Yeah. yeah. You actually understand the scale of the, of the story that is going on, of the, the literal physical scale of the characters. Yeah. Um, and and it, it's it's amazing. I think there are a lot of good ideas, Eternals, but I think that A, I think Paul's right. There's a lot of recycled ideas, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the same is true of New Gods even. Mm-hmm. But the difference is in New Gods, it congealed into a coherent mythology. Right. And Eternals, it doesn't. It, right. it just... And not for lack of trying, mm-hmm. but you can see the joins in a sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think while I wouldn't go as far as, as Abbey slash Don Spurgeon, whoever said what you were, you were citing, um, you can definitely get, you can definitely feel that Kirby is getting tired by, by the end of the series. Yeah. And I think that, that, that's, that really is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think there is a variety of stuff. Uh, Spence also says, my second Kirby related question re- pertains to the Joe Casey pen Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. You covered the early issues in the series on the podcast and expressed both hope and some trepidation that it could be a masterpiece or it could become a train wreck. Now that miniseries has finished, what do you think of the entire run, Graham, since Jeff jumped off after issue two? Uh, it's... It's kind of both. <laughs> um, it's it's a really well-intentioned failure, but mm-hmm. in its failure, I feel that it comes really close to capturing the energy of the original Captain Victory stories. Hmm. Um, it's a comic much like much like Captain Victory, to be honest, where you have to kind of let go of the idea of it being coherent mm-hmm. in favor of the feel of the comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, there's a freneticism that that really does speak to Kirby's 1980s work, mm-hmm. where it seems, you know, everything was always happening and people were always shouting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that really... For my money, uh, speaks to the 1990s image work. Mm. But it's almost as, you know, while Kirby trended towards melodrama and people shouting on every page, as he, he, 
I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying got worse. But I, mm-hmm. I, as he got worse, as Kirby moved into his lesser later period, um, the image comics did a very similar thing as they were starting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there, there's, it's kind of fascinating. It's, uh, if you can go into it with an open mind and, a mind so open that you're not looking for a story that will necessarily make sense or pay off. But for a comic experience, someone should name a story that, Jeff. Um, <laughs> I think you'd, you, I think you could get a lot out of it. Hmm. But, but, uh, yeah. but at the same time, it's also kind of a train wreck. Do you know what right. I mean? Like, yeah, no, no, no. You, if, right. If you are going into it thinking, I really hope the story pays off and i hope this come finishes with a grant statement it doesn't right um and it's worth pointing out i want to say that the series was announced as eight issues and ran six or maybe even five yeah like it was truncated mm. uh and the last couple but especially the last issue of it uh, they really feel like it mm. like there's a lot that's going on there um, and it feels, in some cases, like not what was originally intended to go on. Right. So there is that sense of like, ooh, I wonder what could have happened. Yeah, what was supposed to happen there? Yeah. Um, but but I, I cautiously liked it. In terms of Kirby revivalism, it was definitely better than the the previous attempts to revive Captain Victory. Hmm. So... Your mileage may vary, Paul. Yes. I- I'm going to jump along, uh, if you don't mind, because we're really close, and I don't know if we can make it in the... We've got like, like three. We've got like yeah. three, like, three, and I think we've got maybe ten minutes before this thing starts buzzing okay. like crap. let's go. So, Louis go. Whitford, yeah, r- writes, why didn't Eclipse or First Comics survive, or what's your favorite Eclipse series? Uh, hilariously, all my favorite Eclipse series I thought of were actually first comic series. Oh, really? Well, that's great. Go yeah, with I was those. like, Badger, no wait. Nexus, <laughs> no wait. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh, wait, what did Eclipse actually put out besides Miracle Man? I'm not sure. Uh, right. Miracle did Man, it... Saber, uh, by Don McGregor and Billy Graham, Captain Quick and the Foozle for at least a couple of issues. Look this up on, on Wikipedia. What's that? Are you, Are you or no, no, no? That's oh. off the top of my head. Uh, the Masked Man, who I God, I can't even remember, did the art for the Masked Man. Uh, some of the stuff that Chuck Dixon sort of broke into. I want to say Winter World was an Eclipse comic. Of course, all those runs of Airboy and the Heap, since those were public domain type. Yeah, I, I, I'm looking it up right now. They, they did a laser razor and press button, which is great, but was of course a reprint. Yeah. Uh, they did a lot of good reprints. They did Alex Toth Zero, Alex Toth Zorro, rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, brought to light. They did brought to light in America. Okay, That's right. Yeah, That's great. Yeah, one uh, of the things that Alec, I quite. What's that? They did Alec Eddie Campbell's Alec. Apparently. Oh right! Wow! Holy smokes! Um, yeah, I should I should mention right there. There are things I was a big fan of. Uh, a variety of their stuff. Well, some of their stuff, but like Saber, I think as mentioned by Don, Don McGregor, and Billy Graham, that's really Don McGregor, just like totally flying way off the rails. Uh, and I think I read that more for nostalgia. Miracle man really was quite huge for me. Um, Aztec ace, which doesn't get brought up a lot, but by Doug Mensch and like a variety of dudes, um, was really a very odd kind of fun book. Of course, 
Destroyer Duck by Steve Gerber and Jack Kirby, which I did not read at the time, and I'm totally jonesing for. Um, yeah, I know. I've always been trying to find a back issue and never found it. Yeah, it's kind of tough. Um, I Let me tackle briefly why didn't Co- Eclipse or First Comic survive? There were multiple steps, uh, things that they had to deal with that they weren't necessarily able to, to withstand. Um, both Eclipse and First Comics had to put up with a real beating um, in terms of Marvel Comics flooding the marketplace with high-end Baxter reprints just as Eclipse and First were really getting established. At that point, both of them, for the most part, were able to weather that, but then they each had individual challenges that affected them. As I recall, First Comics ended up um, taking a huge hit when one of the founders uh, slash publishers, Mike Gold, left and took on an editorship at DC Comics and then began pulling dudes like Timothy Truman and Howard Chaikin, guys who had... Ostrander. Yeah, yeah, Ostrander. Dudes who went on to do amazing work for DC, mind you, but also ended up like putting aside the work that they had done at first. Um, And so I feel that was a huge hit that it was hard for first to recover from. Uh, And then... Another hit that that followed soon after that was the way that they were set up as far as creative uh, participation was not especially generous. The people who created the books in theory um, should have been entitled to the rights of those books. Uh, but their contracts were bad. And apparently I didn't realize until I looked at Wikipedia, but one of the things that the creator's Bill of Rights guys came out of were dealing with some of these the bad contracts that existed in the alternative marketplace of which first comics was quite bad so much so in fact that when first comics went under it was an excruciatingly long period of time before you saw any of those books get reprinted because they were tied entirely to the company's assets and so i think we're just shifted back and forth around in bankruptcy um, and the creators could, had to essentially buy them back, which was pretty terrible. In the case of Eclipse, e- e- Eclipse's yeah. collapse was much more straightforward. Uh, yes, yeah, I, I think in well, a lot I, of ways, I can think was. of like three things that just killed Eclipse, like yeah. off the top of the head. Right. Um, uh, they, had, a, they had a, a flood or yes, something. Exactly. They like there destroyed their, their their back catalog. Yeah. Um, the founders got divorced. And that was horrifically acrimonious. It, it, yeah, it was a it was an incredibly messy divorce, and depending on who you believe, um, you know, either one of those people uh, embezzled ridiculous amounts of the money to fund their affair before the marriage was over and live a double life, or the other person was so wackadoodle they were driving away the talent in in droves as well as the other spouse in the marriage. Uh, and therefore they, they rapidly ran out of people that were willing to, to continue to work for them. And um, then, because I remember them, I remember Eclipse being in the comic buyer's guide when I was buying the comic buyer's guide in the nineties. And when basically the direct market died, it mm-hmm. took Eclipse with it. Well, and there were also other things. As far as I can tell, Bill Sienkiewicz might have actually played a pretty big role in 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 the death of Eclipse Comics as well. 
he says, without much knowledge and with a lot of protection under whatever libel and slander laws. Um, I was going to say, that's, that's an interesting story that you might not want to say just yeah. in case. Yeah, exactly. Uh, is my understanding, I think, based on belief, yeah, and it uh, could well be proven wrong. Exactly. Yeah, alleged, yeah, allegedly, my understanding is there was a lot of money that was paid to Bill Sienkiewicz for projects like brought to light, but especially the work that he was doing on the Eclipse trading cards. cards? Yeah, yeah which I was the Eclipse trading cards. Yeah. Yeah, which I kind of adored and were strangely enough a surprisingly successful growth market for Eclipse at a point where nobody was expecting them to. But my understanding is, is Sinkevich at that point was being given a huge money in advances for things that he was not necessarily delivering in a timely manner. So, and I think that might have been problematic in terms of tying up a tremendous amount of um, um, finances. So, you heard it here first, everyone. Jeff just blames Bills and Cabbage for the to the best of his opinion in a non-libelly, non-slandering way. And let's face it, the guy's a genius. Michael Laughlin asks exactly. It's the final question, Jeff. Yeah, pretty much, more or less. Although I feel like we should come back and maybe talk about Drews a little bit more at some point. In your opinion, what recent comics, two thousands and two thousand tens, will be regarded as classics in the future? I am stumped to shit about this because I can think of lots of favorites. And I, when I was like, "What?" But what makes something be considered a classic? Yeah, I, I like I really ran aground. The closest I came was like Saga, but that's only because everyone likes Saga. And I was like, "Well, I guess it's kind of the current Sandman." Right. Yeah, I mean that is that weird definition of like, how do you define a classic? Like, I can tell you which books will probably still be in the libraries and the marketplaces, like, I don't know what, 10 to 15 years from now that have classic labeled all over them. But that's a little too, that has more to say about reaching a level of success or uh, acknowledgement that they will therefore be marketable. And I think walking in and saga are huge chunks of those. Um, I would say that, that Batman by Snyder and Capullo, although honestly, between you and me and the wall, I don't. I think is a highly enjoyable run. I wouldn't think of it as a classic run. Yeah, uh, it's funny when you said that. I was like, really? Yeah, no, I don't. Like, I, I would. Right. I wouldn't put anything from Marvel or DC that's being published right now on on a classic at all. Well, there's underrated class again. I see it as more of a marketing. But that's just term. it. Like you underrated know? classic. Like, uh, Dude, yeah, I, I think I think people could be. I think questions. Questions. Don't know. what's that. I've got such problems with this question. Like, I just yeah. don't know how to answer it. See, exactly. So, like, for me, I can see Unbeatable Scorgirl as being regarded as, like, an underrated classic or a lost classic, you know? But, I mean, but for me, is like, am I going to confuse it with Will Eisner's A Contract with God? No. <laughs> exactly. Like, if we're talking underrated classics, I think that uh, Al Ewing's Loki is going to be one of those comics that will be... Uh, rediscovered in the I, future. Wouldn't you I say in hand in hand with Gillen's Journey into Mystery? Because I feel like those. Yes, books no. Are I uh, I think I think that uh, Loki is very much the uh, part two of Journey into Mystery. Mm-hmm. But I think it also stands alone enough, and in a weird way, was under rated in a way that I think Journey into Mystery wasn't, in part because I think Journey into Mystery had a second life when Young Avengers came out. Mm. 
And I don't think Loki... I don't think Loki's going to get a second life mm-hmm. soon. Hmm. So I think I quite expect Loki in like five or ten years mm-hmm. to be uh, a, one of those like core texts that will be rediscovered. I, I don't... But like I, a DC? God knows. Well, like I said, I feel like, I feel like Batman... Uh, I feel like, I don't know, for myself, there's, there is shit going on in, in some of those individual issues of Grayson written by Tom King that I think are kind of amazing comics that really are the sort of things that if he ever, you know, does a Watchmen level book that gets that kind of attention, those books will continue to be in print for a long, long oh, yeah, time. I, like, I think Omega Man is, mm-hmm. is great. But mm-hmm. you know, it's not over. If he doesn't stick the landing, he doesn't stick the landing. Right, exactly. So, um, but you know, I, I see stuff like Walking Dead. I mean, for myself, there's a lot of stuff that has come out via manga and and individual stuff. I don't know. You know, it, it's one that I would like to come back and, and take a swing on answering. But I think it's it's hard for me because the difference between a quote unquote true classic as opposed to the marketing term classic is one that I'm having trouble. Um, Factoring out, I guess. Oh, Kate, I am going to throw Kate Beaton in there again. Then, mm. yeah, I, no, think I, that... I suddenly was just like, yeah, I think Kate Beaton's body of work. Um, yeah, and along similar lines, I think Noel Stevenson's Nimona. Yeah, see, and that's it. I think there's a lot more stuff that's going to end up happening along the, um, in terms of alt and indie stuff. I think there's a very good chance that Lumberjanes could end up possibly becoming a perennial um you know at least the noel stevenson issues of that you know i i think that there's stuff like part of me but i mean you know part of me is like the real interesting like we need to sit sit down with a list and be like okay brian lee o'malley's uh seconds is that going to be considered a classic oh but scott Scott pilgrim is going to be see whereas i think scott pilgrim is and yet part of me is like i don't feel I don't. I don't know to what extent Scott Pilgrim is left the dialogue, or yeah, re, yeah. or if it should have re-entered the dialogue by now. So I'm kind of yeah. confused. I don't. I don't. It's not really a slam dunk, you know. Like yeah, I'm it, kind it, of. It really isn't. Yeah. So it's it's a really tough call. Of all the writers who never worked with him, which writer would have made a good scripter for Jack Kirby? Feel free to choose one of his contemporaries or a current writer. Seventy Steve Englehart. Wow. You know, see, so here's my thing. I feel that Kirby really honestly needs a dude who, as we've talked about a little bit in the Baxter building, essentially someone who seems almost like a very generous editor, you know, who will uh, rewrite Kirby in a in a sensitive way, almost, almost treat him like a, a a visual translator. And so in that sense, yeah, sorry, who were you going to say? So in that sense, I don't really necessarily know because people who I think of, uh, a lot of people that I think of are much more um, like, Oh, I want to leave my stamp on this series or this artist, or I've got a story that I want to tell. Whereas to me, part of the interesting thing would be like, how could someone who would be good for trying to tell a Jack Kirby story sort of sensitively and, and bring out like kind of the layers and nuance of it. And I I have a suggestion who will not do that, but now that I've thought of it, I wish could have written for Jack Kirby. Mm. Ranting Graham. 
See, that's so weird. I was going to say A, Brandon Graham, and B, <laughs> the other one that I was going to say, because I know that he has done much more collaborative work with artists such as with Hans Osser of Zilk, is I think Al Ewing. I think Al Ewing would be very interesting to see work on something from Kirby. Um, you know, and it would be tough because, of course, I think that actually uh, Al does some of the best Kirby parody stuff, like, ever. But, you know, part of me would be kind of interested to see Paul Pope try and script uh, Kirby, you know, take yeah. Kirby and then have Pope try and, and 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 bring the script on top of that. I think I think you would need guys who have strong – like. In theory, people who started out as cartoonists and then wrote their own stuff and then have a very yeah. specific um, understanding of how artists work and how 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 to how to bring that to their strengths, I think. You know? So what we're saying is Brian Michael Bendis and Jack Kirby would be a winning company. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, because it is true. <laughs> At that point, you do run into those weird areas of like, yeah, sure. So you're saying that about them or – Ed Brubaker, you know, actually, I think, I think Brubaker and Kirby would be. <laughs> I was going to say, I would have loved to have read a Brubaker and Kirby Captain America. Yeah, I think so too. I, I actually think that, I think that that would have been something that I think, um, Brubaker would have handled. Cause I feel like there's sort of a certain amount of the stuff that we've seen where people are like, Hey, it's the lost, you know, fantastic four issue or, Oh, Hey, here's some Kirby pages. And we're going to have them be rescripted by like, I don't know, fucking Ron Mars. I just, I'm always kind of like, they never to me quite come off. Right. You know, I think, I think Morrison is one of those guys who talks about having an appreciation for Kirby as a writer who has a real awareness of what, Kirby speaks sounds like when he's broken it out in places like Final Crisis and things. So I think that he would be great if he was interested in doing it again, not as much from a tra what we think of as a traditional Grant Morrison comic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Very much. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. We're in agreement on that one. And that is the last question. Yes. Yeah, we, we were us. Uh, with the exception of Drew's, who we've already kind of tackled. But I think we should come back to. I, I yeah. think we should spend some more time talking about libraries and comics in the future because yeah. I do use the library a lot and I'm, I feel I am woefully under-equipped mm -hmm. to really address the economics. Uh, so, so I think we should spend more time explaining why we're under-equipped in the future. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe talk to people and get some more information. Yeah, I think so. Maybe that'll, that'll be a thing that we can we can open up our, our next Wait What episode with. That might be might be a good thing. God knows. There's no better way to ask for a certain doom than uh, than to actually make a plan with the Wait What exactly. podcast I, scheduling. I, but... I'd like to say, listeners, if you're listening to us thinking, I can't wait for the next Wait What episode because they're going to be talking about libraries, you can pretty much bet your bottom dollar that we won't. <laughs> Graham, do you want to tell uh, oh, people where to find us and all that other awesome stuff that you do so well? What notes? Have you ever heard of this thing called the internet? Turns out we're all over the fucking internet. We're available at waitwhatpodcast.com. I almost said waitwhat.com, which is not us. Waitwhatpodcast.com is us. That's where you want to go, not only to get show notes for this very episode, but also Find written posts by Mr. Jeffrey Lester, Esquire, by myself, and Mr. Matthew Terrell, Esquire. Um, all of which, especially Matt's, are intelligent, 
in a way that we do not quite manage here in this podcast. Uh, so on the Tumblr, we're waitwhatpod.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at waitwhatpodcast. Jeff is on Twitter just himself as at lazybastard, L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I am at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. Um, we are also available on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. And we are a Patreon-supported podcast. Thank you very much to the people who support us. Uh, we love you very dearly. We are always terrible at saying that. And so I'm telling you right now, more sincerely than it sounds, we really do appreciate the, the money that you give us to help us do things like this podcast. Yes. Um, Jeff? Oh, I was also going to say, people, thank you. We were going to do, we were going to do a thank you of all of our patrons, and I don't think we honestly have time. So we will do yes. that. Two thirty-five. In yeah. the next wait, what? Yeah, the next wait, what? We will have a thank you. We also, uh, someone uh, was kind enough to point out. God, I wish I was going to be on it enough to to figure out who this was. Oh Lord, I want to say who this is very quickly, and I'm not going to find it. Uh, somebody pointed out um, they were kind of curious uh, about. Um, they had become a patron in part because they were looking forward to recommending books for us to read. Um, originally, the, whatever the the threshold I, for that I think was, you're talking about Steve H. Ah, oh, thank you. Was it Steve? Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, Steve actually pointed out that uh, there there was a recommendation section that they were part of. The, what made them become a patron was looking forward to be able to recommend uh, a book for us, and uh, and we actually had not been so awesome about that. Wait, is that true? Um, no, no, really, it's true that we had not been awesome about it. If that's what you're asking, yeah, I'm doing a bad job trying to find this email. Basically. Thank you for being so patient, patrons. We are, I, I've, it has been brought to my attention that I've not done a good job at following up on A, there's still a few books that we solicited from months ago that we haven't discussed about, and I appreciate uh, Chris Peterson's uh, uh, patience with that. We also will be hitting people up for their recommendations for books for us to read, because some of you have quietly hung in there well past the point when you were supposed to get that particular perk, and uh, it will be coming. And we will have a lot of books to talk about. We'll just have to figure out in what order we're going to talk about them. So... Uh, stay tuned. There's so much more. Wait, what goodness? My goodness. We can't even begin to tell you. Goodness. Jeff's goodness. Indeed. What nuts. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, we are apologizing that it took us this long to answer all the questions, but I will say this. Ali, you said it would take us 31 episodes to get through the questions. In your face, but please don't hit me. <laughs> Well done, Graham. <laughs> <laughs>